0: Hello my friends and welcome back. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And as always, we've got some amazing scripture to discuss this week. Though some might not believe me with that, since we are into several books of scripture that might be among the least well-known in the entire Old Testament, which is tragic. I mean, people don't seem to understand Isaiah, but at least they know him and know they should be studying him. But the prophets we'll discuss today are so easily overlooked and underappreciated which is tragic, because honestly, out of today's material, there will, we'll see a verse, for example, that Paul quotes to the Jews and Jesus quotes to the Nephites. It's that important. We'll see a verse today that in some ways was the, the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation. How's that for impact? Uh, the books today are incredibly applicable, even though they so often go overlooked. And here they are, buried in the back. That We are halfway through the Book of the Twelve, We've got six minor prophets behind us and now six yet ahead. And we're so close to the New Testament, maybe by now we're getting trunky and just want to move forward. But endure to the end. It's worth it. We are at the 3-2-1 countdown before the blast off into the New Testament in the new year. And literally we'll have three prophets today and two next week and then one, just Malachi, for our final lesson. Uh, But the three that we'll be studying today are Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And perhaps they go forgotten because we don't know much about them at all. Even among minor prophets, at least Hosea, we knew his family dynamics and the strange names of his children. And at least with Amos, we knew him well enough to know that he was a, a herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We saw the story that we all know in the book of Jonah last week. But when it comes to these three... Basically, all we know about them is that they were prophets. But maybe that's enough, because their messages are so prophetic, not only for their day, but for our own. Now, if I could sum up the three together, I would say that these three prophets provide for us a chronological crescendo of consequences. Is that enough alliteration for you? We are going to see words of woe and warnings of coming destruction in each of these books. And each one will, again, get a little more intense and a little closer to home for us. The book of Nahum is written to the Ninevites. That's how I remember it. N for Nahum and N for Nineveh. Okay, a little mnemonic device for you. And and Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Yes, those Assyrians that are coming down to conquer the northern kingdom. Get this close to conquering the southern kingdom. Scatter the tribes... Uh, that's what's happening in the days of Isaiah okay and so Nahum most likely was living around the same time period perhaps a little bit a little earlier but his message is one of it's not about the Ninevites it's to the Ninevites and he's warning them you're about to be destroyed does that sound familiar by the way as of last week isn't that what Jonah's message was but in Jonah's case they listened and they repented and they were spared in Nahum's case no such luck They will not repent, and they will be destroyed by the Babylonians. And that's when Habakkuk comes onto the scene, because Habakkuk also has a message of destruction. At first, it's a message to Judah saying, you're going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. But then it shifts, and now the message is to the Babylonians, you're going to be destroyed too, in their case by the Persians. You see how its we've used this analogy before of like the little fish getting eaten by the bigger fish behind it and then eaten by the still bigger fish behind it. And you have these dominoes of empires falling where the Assyrians fall to the Babylonians who fall to the Persians who fall to the Greeks who eventually fall to the Romans. And in each of these instances, each round is in some ways a, a prelude and preview of the kind of destruction that the wicked world will face before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that's where the book of Zephaniah comes in. That's the climax of the crescendo. And Zephaniah zooms out, sees big picture, and talks about the destruction of the world, the end times. And even if you remember the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi, so much history there, but... One of the reasons that Nephi was bringing it up and that Isaiah was prophesying of all these things is that the destruction of the Assyrians was meant to help us understand what the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world would be like. And in case you missed the first time, look at it again. The destruction of the Babylonians will similarly be a preview of coming destructions at the end of time. In a way, what Isaiah did single-handedly, these three prophets, yeah, I guess it takes three prophets to equal one Isaiah, right? But in a way, you have... Nahum speaking of Assyria, you have Habakkuk speaking of Babylon, and then you have Zephaniah speaking of the end of the world. So Nahum and Habakkuk are pointing ahead to what Zephaniah is giving us. I hope that makes at least a little bit of sense. And as far as our own application is concerned, I hope these books, in some ways their messages are downers because it's destruction they're speaking of but it's the destruction of the enemies of Israel. And that ought to give Israel hope, knowing that someday our enemies will be all behind us and the Lord will have come and conquered and that we're in a millennial day of rest and peace and it's all good, finally. I do hope that we'll find hope in these messages today because yes, we have to pass through Armageddon but as Elder Maxwell has said, that's just a step in the direction of Adam on Diamond and that's really where we want to head so let's allow these prophets to, to point us in that divine direction we'll start with Nahum, now his name comes from a Hebrew word meaning comfort so his name could be translated something like comforter or consoler it might actually be the shortened version of the name Nehemiah Nehemiah, the Yah at the end stands for Jehovah. So Nehemiah, the name means Jehovah has comforted. And in Nehemiah's case, that was he personified it beautifully because he's the one that gets to help the Israelites come back and rebuild after the Babylonian destruction, right? Let's rebuild the city. Let's rebuild the temple. How's that for comfort and consolation? Well, Nehemiah's version of comfort is going to be different than Nehemiah's. Because again, it's a matter of you can be comforted knowing that God is going to pass judgment upon your enemies. And ultimately, you will be free of them. So, notice in Nahum, Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, he begins this message and it's a warning to the foe, to the Assyrians. It begins, The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite, And as we saw back in the book of Isaiah, Many a chapter began with that phrase, the burden of Edom, or the burden of Moab, or the burden of Babylon. And I love that description of the, the weight of responsibility that's on the shoulders of a prophet. It is a burden that they bear. I imagine the current First Presidency in corner of the Twelve are probably all seven-footers, or at least would be if they weren't so crushed by the weight of that heavy, heavy mantle. Yeah, those red chairs in, in the conference center, I think they only look... Comfortable. <laughs> I don't think they are. But like I, Ezekiel said, the watchman on the tower, you better feel the weight of that responsibility, because if you don't take it seriously, then, then the sins of the people will be on you. Well, the sins of the Assyrians? There's a lot to bear. Yeah, you think so? Nahum feels it. And so he bears this burden and tries to warn the Ninevites, the Assyrians, of their impending doom. Now, he's going to do it in a powerful way. Nahum is an incredible book of poetry. He's not quite as good as Isaiah. I mean, who could be? But it's it's beautiful poetry throughout. And here at the beginning, he starts with an acrostic poem. Remember, we saw a lot of acrostics in the book of Psalms, where an acrostic, you start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and verse by verse, you work your way through the alphabet. This one's a partial acrostic. It'll only cover the first 15 letters. But the way he does it is with two rounds of seven stanzas, and in the middle of each stanza is just this reminder of something really important. Again, l- literarily, it's beautiful what Nahum does here. Uh, the first stanza, uh, or the first set of stanzas, excuse me, is going to talk about God's power over nature. But in the middle, and that's destructive power in many instances, but in the middle is a reminder of God's goodness. And then the second set, this other long st- uh, set of stanzas, is a, a A description of God's power over the enemies of Israel, over his enemies. Again, a lot of power there, destructive power. And yet in the middle, another reminder of his goodness. So don't lose sight of the goodness of God in the midst of all of this destructive language. Okay, That's one of the messages of hope he's trying to hide here. So look at verse 2 and 3, and you'll be able to see both halves. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. Can you picture him kind of building off one phrase with the next? From revenge to revenge onto fury. He goes on, the Lord will take vengeance in his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Now, as strong as that sounds, notice the next verse. This gentle reminder, the Lord is slow to anger. But don't take that for granted, because keep going, and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. This is the God of the universe, after all. So whirlwind and storm and cloud, yeah, that's nothing to him. <laughs> Let alone the, the Assyrian army, which would be less than the dust of the earth. Now, to understand what, what Nahum is doing here, that that those two verses, two and three, really are fascinating. Because in some ways, it almost seems like Nahum is contradicting himself. Wait, you, you said he was slow to anger. Then why do you talk so much about fury and wrath and vengeance? What's up with that? Well, in some ways, those are all attributes of divinity, just on different sides of him. Sound like a proving of contraries? <laughs> I thought you'd, say, you'd think so. What Nahum is trying to do is help people understand that God is a God of perfect justice and a God of perfect mercy. In fact, he's a God of perfect judgment to know which of the two he needs to lead with in any given moment. It's one of the things I love about the lectures on faith as Joseph Smith is describing the characteristics and attributes of God. There's a good long list, but three of them that really are relevant here is judgment and justice and mercy. You see, it's the judgment that knows how to balance justice and mercy. As a parent, I stink at all three. And there's times I err on the side of justice and other times I err on the side of mercy, but I always seem to be erring on one side or the other. Will I ever get it right and know just how accountable to hold my children for their best you know, long-term results or just how merciful to give them another chance and know that they can do this? The Lord does it perfectly. And I think what Nahum is doing here in 2 and 3 is trying to balance things for his hearers. He's both of these. Uh in, in a way, you see Alma doing this beautifully with his son, Corey Anton, who has committed a major sin on his mission. And for four chapters, Alma 39, 40, 41, 42 is a long talk with Dad. That might have been uncomfortable. At least chapter 39 was because in 39, he goes strong on justice. It's more of that the Lord revengeth and he's furious and, and he reserves wrath. But just when you thought it was over for Corianton, Alma shifts gears and reminds him that God is also slow to anger. And he teaches him beautiful doctrines in chapter 40 and 41 and 42, including the balance of justice and mercy and the need for both. No wonder then at the very end, he nails this Goldilocks zone with Corianton. And he says this to him in Alma forty-two twenty-one: Now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more. That's the slow-to-anger mercy side. But then, just in case Coriant is going to go back to his old ways, Dad adds, And only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. That's when you know you're in the Goldilocks zone. You'll actually repent. You see, I can picture Corianz going, Wait, don't, tr- don't let these things trouble me? Then why'd you chew me, about, chew me out in 39? Well, because you weren't troubled enough. Okay, well, by the end, I was... Ultra-troubled, way too troubled. So I know, that's why I'm pulling you back. Well, how troubled should I be? Great question, son. Just troubled enough to want to change. You see, if you're too troubled, you won't repent because you don't think you can. But if you're not troubled enough, then you won't repent because you don't think you must. And either way, you're not repenting, and that's the problem. So, as Nahum is trying to get the Ninevites to repent, is he... Trying to balance justice and mercy for their sake as well? It sure seems like it. Now, notice also that the audience is the Ninevites themselves. So what he's saying about the God of Israel is meant for people who may not know him as well as they need. So let's go through that description one more time. Okay, Start at the beginning of verse 2. God is jealous. Now, in our understanding, that's not a good thing. Uh, jealousy, isn't that kind of self-centered? And they want everything that, for themselves that other people might have? Isn't that a human failing that's beneath God? Well, of course, which means it must mean something else when it says that God is jealous. Another way to take that might be that God is fiercely loyal to his people and demands that they be fiercely loyal to him. This is a covenant relationship after all, right? We're in a marriage together. Even when Gomer goes astray, Hosea stays faithful, but he's jealous. You're my wife. Come back, please. And not just for my sake, for yours. I'm the only one that can help you. The only one that can redeem you. And that's the jealousy of God. Stay with me here. I am am so intensely committed to my relationship with my covenant people. That's one thing you Ninevites need to know. Because you're treating my people like an enemy. and, And I'm jealous of those people. I'm fiercely loyal to them. So if you're their enemy, then you're my enemy, which makes me your enemy too. So be careful here. And no wonder then he builds on that. The Lord revengeth. Oh yeah, he revenges and is furious. Oh yeah, he's vengeance on his adversaries, wrath for his enemies. Is that, am I referring to you now, Nineveh? Are you going to act like that? Become my enemy? Now in the middle of that is where he says the Lord is slow to anger. And then right back to great in power. And I'm not going to acquit the the wicked. And I think what he's getting at here is don't assume just because that promised vengeance and wrath hasn't come yet. Don't assume that it never will. Just because I am slow to anger doesn't mean I never get angry or better. Yes, better said righteous indignation. Oh, I feel it. But I restrain immediate justice in order to allow mercy to have some time to work. Now, this is key for all of us, since in a way, just like we saw last week with Jonah, we are Nineveh, and the Lord needs to caution us at times through his prophets that yes, God is slow to anger, but he is a just God. Do not underestimate that. And just because you haven't been punished for your sins yet, Don't assume that you've been acquitted and that the piper will never come to be paid. No, the law of the harvest is a reality. It just doesn't always happen in this life. It will ultimately happen in the next. But to understand where we need to be in all of this, I guess what I'm trying to say is, to borrow Paul's language, don't despise the riches of God's goodness. Don't presume upon his grace. I know he delighteth in mercy, as we saw last week with Micah. I know, yes, he is slow to anger, as we see this week in Nahum. But he is just and will always be. In a way, this whole sense of timing puts God in an interesting place. We see it in Joseph Smith, Matthew, that in the last days, the destruction of the wicked, that's what we're going to see in Zephaniah at the end of, today's, of this week's material, in that coming destruction it will be so intense the wickedness of the world that if those days are not shortened, Jesus says then no flesh shall be saved that scares me to death if we don't speed things up if, if God doesn't hasten his work in his time then nobody's going to make it wow, I mean the world is getting worse which means staying righteous appears to be getting more and more difficult well will it get to a point where there's no chance for any of us to make it well It would be that way if God did not intervene and speed things up. The analogy I always use use with my students is in a a basketball or a football game, if your team's ahead, but there's enough time on the clock for the other team to come back and beat you, and right now they have all the momentum on their side, and you're like, oh no. If we could end the game right now, we'd win because we're ahead. But if we let it go till the end, we're probably going to lose this thing. That's what Jesus is hinting at. Makes me want to go over to the scoreboard and like unplug it. Like, oh, bummer. I guess the game's over. And we were ahead. So we're good. We're done. The Lord promises to basically to do just that. But then you also get language like this, that he's slow in other areas, even though he's trying to be quick in that one. Or language like Lehi's when he says that God prolongs the days of the children of men, that he lengthens them. And why would he do that? To give them opportunity to repent. Isn't that what Jonah did? 40 days. God will lengthen that time. And if you use it well. Then destruction will not come. Here I think a similar message is coming from Nahum. For the Ninevites and for all of us. Yes God is slow to anger. But it will come. When your 40 days are up. That period of of preparation. And purification. I cannot... Prolong your days indefinitely, otherwise the days can't be shortened and no flesh will be saved. Put those two verses side by side, those two concepts, and God is between a rock and a hard place. I want to shorten the days so our team wins, but I want to lengthen the days because I love the people on the other side, on the other team. And I just want them to cross the field or come across the court and join the winning team. That's what I'm waiting for. You understand why it's so dangerous for us to procrastinate the days of our repentance? It doesn't allow God to cut short his work in righteousness. It doesn't allow him to shorten the days so that more of us can be saved. So please be careful. Be grateful for the fact that God is slow to anger. But but realize what we're up against. Because it's allowing the wicked world to continue to build its own momentum. So we need to repent. Now verse 4 and 5, Nahum goes on and continues to talk about God's power. He says, He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and dryeth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. Those three places, by the way, Bashan with all of its oaks and, and fat cows, the kind that that Amos talked about. Uh, Carmel is synonymous with the dews of Carmel. It's where the contest with the priests of Baal was. Lots of good weather there, growth and flourishing. Lebanon, well, there's the cedars of Lebanon, best trees in the Middle East. And yet what's happening in all of those areas? They're languishing, they're withering, dying on the vine. He goes on, the mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. There's a nod to what Zephaniah will do because he's talking about the whole globe by now. The earth, the world. Now, that's the God you're up against, Nineveh. Not just the God of little provincial Palestine. This is the God of the universe. This is the king of creation. Haven't you heard some of his stories about rebuking the sea, the Red Sea, and having Israel cross on dry ground? Drying up the river? How about stopping the Jordan so they could come into their promised land? I'm, I'm that God. I'm the same God. And I'm still jealously loyal to my people. So be careful how you feel about boasting in your own strength. Because, in fact, let me put it this way. When he speaks of drying up rivers, because Isaiah... It, 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 Isaiah really is a key to understand a lot of what we're going to see today. Isaiah talks about the coming of the Assyrians as a flood, as a river that comes in and then parts its ways and just floods Israel with devastation. And yet, here, what is Nahum saying? Yeah, God can dry up rivers. That includes your river, Assyria. You know, you might seem, it, it might seem like you have an army. As innumerable as the the sands of the sea. Drops of water in this ocean of officers. And yet, what do I do with the sea? I rebuke it. Don't feel... See, this is another gift that Isaiah gives us. When he says... uh, Remember he describes Assyria as a rod, but it's the Lord's chastening rod. And he's using Assyria to try to guide Israel back to where they need to go. But then he says, but if that rod starts to boast itself and shake itself against its owner, its bearer, then time to replace the rod. If the axe starts to boast itself against the one that's hewing with it, then no, axe, I'm the one doing the work. You're just my instrument. Same with the saw that thinks it's doing all the cutting and is oblivious to the hand on the handle. Remember all that from Isaiah? You're getting a similar sense here from Nahum that Ninevites, the people of Assyria, God used you as an instrument to correct and chasten his own covenant people. But the moment you start taking glory to yourself is the moment that you're no longer God's instrument. You're now fully God's enemy. And you will be consumed by someone else. The same thing's going to happen with the Babylonians once we get to Habakkuk. Okay, interesting parallels here. But then read in verse 6 through 8 some fascinating questions. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? You think it's you, Assyria? You really think you can handle this just because you've conquered all these other gods? No. His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. So please do not underestimate God's justice. Then again, what's he say in the next line? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble and he knoweth them that trust in him. Then again swing the pendulum back, but with an overrunning flood he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Once again we see approving of contr- contraries. Once again we see correct one extreme, but don't overcorrect into the opposite extreme. Balance justice and mercy here. Or another way to say it would be to the enemy let me remind you of my indignation and the fierceness of my anger. To my own covenant people, may I remind you that I am good, that I am a stronghold in the day of trouble. That should also be a reminder of, for the enemies because you're not just t- taking on my people, you're taking on me. And I am a stronghold that you will not be able to breach. Again, for those who are struggling with enemies, that is, that's powerful language. And if you feel like you are under siege to sin, and that temptation is coming to knock down your walls, if doubt seems to be finding its way through every keyhole, rest assured that the Lord who is good is our stronghold. And anytime you are in trouble, know that you are behind his walls. Remember what he said through Isaiah? Thy walls are continually before me. He doesn't just have watchmen on the tower and watchmen on the walls. He is our wall. He is our refuge. And he is a stronghold because he knows those that trust in him. I love that phrase as well. He knoweth them that trust in him. He knows them because they obviously know him. That's why they trust in him. And having that much faith in his power, in his goodness, in his strength, then why would I ever fear my enemy? In fact, why wouldn't my enemy fear my God? Who can stand before his indignation? No one. Not even the mighty Assyrian Empire. Nahum then adds in verse 9 and 10 another question for them to consider. What do ye imagine against the Lord? That is such an important thing to consider. What are we imagining against Him? What kind of a God are you envisioning? What do you picture Him to be? He goes on, He will make an utter end. (laughs) Don't, don't, Don't doubt that. Just because His Anger is slow in coming and that you've been conquering kingdom after kingdom before you. Oh, he will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. God's going to take care of business the first. For while they be folded together as thorns and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. After all, the sea has been rebuked and the rivers have been, <laughs> have been stopped. Where's, where are the dews of Carmel now? Th- this, all that's left is stubble fully dry, which means that field, the good grain, has already been harvested. All that's left is this stubble, and the field is ready to be burned in preparation of next year's planting. And that's you, Assyria. All that's left of you, or all that will be left of you, is stubble fully dry. Why? Because you're imagining things about the God of Israel that just aren't true. What kind of a God did you think he was? One that was easily vanquished like the gods of all the other kingdoms you've conquered? I mean, just remember when Shaka, the Assyrian general, gets down to uh, Jerusalem and starts talking smack at the city walls in Hebrew so he can strike fear into the hearts of every soldier? Remember what he says as he talks smack about the God of Israel? But it's just his imaginings of that God. Thinking that he is powerless. No better than any other God of any other kingdom. Whereas King Hezekiah knew at that exact moment, why are you comparing our God to their gods? Because those aren't any gods. Ours is different. Ours is the only one. And so be careful what you imagine against him. He will be no pushover. He will not be someone that allows you to conquer his land at his people's expense. Oh, He, I mean, he will use you to correct them and chasten them. But he's the one doing the correcting, not you. Now, before we move on, Can I take a moment and add one last wrinkle to make it more applicable to us? And I want us all to ponder that that initial question. What do we imagine against the Lord? Or what do we imagine about the Lord? What what kind of a God do we think he is? Now, through much of, of Protestant history, especially through Calvinism, when John Calvin split off his group in the Protestant Reformation, he tried more than anything to guard the sovereignty of God, which is a good thing. But he did it to such an extent that he turned God into an unapproachable deity that people tended to obey out of fear rather than follow out of love. It's that mentality that, that brings on sinners in the hands of an angry God, that famous sermon from Jonathan Edwards, that God looks at you like a spider that he's dangling over the pit of hell. He looks at you with disgust and loathing. Uh, Is that what you're imagining God to be? Are you imagining him to be all vengeance and fury and wrath, like we saw in a previous verse? And have you lost sight of his goodness? Have you lost sight of the fact that he is slow to anger? Because many a Calvinist did. Now, as contraries go, usually when a culture for a time is at one extreme, then eventually a new generation will come that is countercultural and tries to correct that, that imbalance, unfortunately, usually by overcorrecting it. And while one gener so when, when one generation erred on the side of God is too just, subsequent generations tend to err on the side of God being too merciful. And that does seem to describe the way we imagine things about God in our day. And we have turned him into a pushover. We have said that he's so slow to anger that he never gets angry at all. And that's not the case. If in the old days, justice robbed mercy, in our day, mercy robs justice. And those are false imaginings either way. In fact, if I could add one thing to your vocabulary... This is a fascinating thing that several Protestant researchers have figured out. That what is going wrong with religion in our day? Why are people leaving it or not fully living into it? Uh, They've come up with what they call a parasitic faith. It's almost this this cancer that's working its way into denominations across the board. And doesn't become its own denomination. It just parasitically attaches itself to other churches' beliefs and starts to suck out the spiritual strength from within. Sound intriguing? Sound concerning? Because guess what? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not immune to this parasitic faith either. They call it moralistic, therapeutic deism, which admittedly doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I mean, no wonder they don't have the moralistic, therapeutic, deistic first ward uh, or as its own denomination no, instead it's much more insidious because it takes God for who he is and then imagines things about him that, that destroy the whole idea of who our Father in heaven really is. I'll give you some examples. The moralistic side would say, well, as people of faith, we're supposed to be moralistic, which isn't even quite moral, but close. Uh, it's watered down a belief in holiness and self-sacrifice and repentance, self-discipline, self-denial. Instead, let's just boil it down to an easy lowest common denominator and let's be moralistic in terms of let's be nice to people. Now, it's important to be nice to people, don't get me wrong, but this is a niceness that prioritizes do no harm in terms of, well, how are people going to feel about themselves? Let's just you do you. That's the, the clarion call of, moral, of moral, moralism instead of true morality. You see, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to make anybody feel bad. And so if I just have love, and again, remember last week, that's one of the the ideographs in our day that's untouchable. Moralistic therapeutic deism trades on love with no limits. Love divorced from law. It's all about the second great commandment without much concern for the first great commandment. You see how it would be so parasitic? How it can attach itself in in religions? Because it sounds pretty good to start. Just make sure everyone feels good and, and they're accepted exactly as they are. It's the come as you are, which is true, but you can also leave as you were, which is not how God approaches things. There's the moralistic. The therapeutic is along those same lines. The greatest goal is that we all feel comfortable in our own skin and aren't asked to change because sometimes those can be hard sayings. Who can hear them? I mean, the wicked take the truth to be hard. So let's avoid those hard truths and let's just tell people what they want to hear. Let's scratch the itching ear. Let's Let's do what the priest of Noah did to the people of King Noah of just, hey, there's no law, so there's no sin, so there's no reason to feel guilt. How's that for good therapy? Therapeutic? You understand why that, they use that term? It's less about prophets crying repentance and more about therapists making sure people feel very comfortable in their circumstances. And I'm not saying anything negative against therapists. Please don't get me wrong. Okay, But when religion has become that, and there is no set standard, there's no ultimate truth or, or divinely designed right and wrong, then that's all we're left with is therapeuticism. And then the deism, that's an interesting view because it still acknowledges God, but the God of deism, that was the God of Thomas Paine, is distant Unless you need him to come through in the clutch at some moment. But for the most part, you kind of just do it on your own. Because if God were present in our lives, he'd probably be telling us what to do. And that's not good therapy. He'd ask us to be holy and not just nice. And I'd rather just be content with my moralism. You see where where these scholars are coming from? I was blown away by this insight. and, And frankly concerned that I see its presence in my own faith. Culturally, that is. Uh, And to me, that question is something I want to linger in our minds a little more often than it does. What do we imagine against the Lord? And is the Lord trying to break through those imaginings and reintroduce himself as a Lord of love? Yes, but also a Lord of law. As a God who, yes, is slow to anger but also has commandments he expects us to live. This is, this is who we worship. This is how we worship him. This is life eternal that we might know God and Jesus Christ and know them for who they really are. No imaginings at all. A God of great expectations. A God of covenant and jealous to keep us in it for our sake. Maybe we could chew on that a little longer. But Nahum moves forward and says in verse 11 and 12, There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord. Same phrase he used back in verse 9. What are you imagining? Well, let me introduce you to someone who is. Who's imagining evil. He's a wicked counselor. I honestly wonder if he's referring to Rabshakeh that Assyrian general who comes and boasts and taunts and scares the soldiers. Here's a wicked counselor. Now, thus saith the Lord to that type of person. This is the message he would give to someone like Rabshakeh. Though they be quiet and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. Now, by quiet and many, what he means by this is you might feel like you have all kinds of allies or all kinds of armies at your command. Yeah, Yes, they are many. And is that what is giving you this sense of peace and quiet? You have so much flesh on the arm in which to trust that you think you're invincible against the puny God of Israel. Well, talk about imagining evil against him. So what's the message to, the, to you? You'll be cut down as soon as I pass through. The only reason I haven't passed through yet is to give you time to repent. I am slow to anger after all. And then he seems to shift gears and address the Israelites themselves with this next phrase in verse 12. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. My covenant people, yes, Assyria has been chastening you. They have been the rod in my hand, but now I'm going to break that rod over my knee because it's boasting itself. It thinks it's doing the correction. And no, they are obscuring my mighty hand. And I can't allow that to happen. You will be delivered, Israel. Even those in their scattered condition will ultimately be gathered again. A righteous remnant shall remain, right? Share Yahshu. Those who are not my people can still be my people, right? Lo ami. I mean, Ami. You understand all these prophets and all the the shared messages that they are collectively trying to give to their audience as well as to each of us? I do love that phrase. Yes, I've afflicted you. I'll afflict you no more. In a little wrath, Isaiah said, have I hid my face from thee. But with everlasting kindness will I gather thee. I get the same feeling from this passage. Nahum then gives us this in 13 and 14. For now will I break his yoke off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. This is the people of God finally being free of foreign oppression. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee. Now he seems to be talking back to the Assyrians. That no more of thy name be sown. In other words, you won't have any posterity to pass down your name. Your name won't be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. And again, I think that has a literal fulfillment in the story of, of Rabshaka and Sennacherib. Because remember what Sennacherib, when, when there's this devastation among the army that's been camped out outside Jerusalem. Was it 185,000 casualties overnight as the destroying angel came tearing through? And Sennacherib turns tail and runs back to Nineveh. Nahum's target audience, where he is slain in the temple of his own gods by his own sons. How's that for being cut off from posterity? In his case, cut off by posterity. How's that for no name being sown? How's that for graven images and molten images cutting you off? Your own temple, your own so-called deities. It's all happening to the Assyrians. Then in verse 15, he seems to switch back to the Israelites. That, this is one of the things that makes Nahum difficult. Uh, it's poetry, that makes it hard already, but it seems like he switches back and forth really quickly without even giving us the heads up of, is this line for Assyria and is this line for Israel? Is it all meant for, ah, how, does it, how do we do this? You kind of have to just read into the context and understand, oh, he couldn't possibly be saying this to the Assyrians. Uh, when he says, I'm not going to afflict you anymore. No, that's got to be for his own people. And same thing with this in verse 15. How's this for a message of hope for his covenant people? Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. That verse should ring some bells from Isaiah from Abinadi, from Jesus. All kinds of people have quoted that same concept of beautiful feet upon the mountains because they're publishing peace. And why is there peace now in the Promised Land? Because a bunch of other feet, the Assyrian ones, have turned tail and run back home to Nineveh. And if they don't repent, there'll be no chance to run any further because the Babylonians are on their way. That's the big warning that you see in chapter two, verse one and two. He says, he that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. And other translations simplify or shorten that instead of he that dasheth in pieces. It's simply a shatterer or another translation, a scatterer. Hmm. Okay. Now we're getting closer. The scattering of the Northern kingdom the lost ten tribes, that will happen at the hands of the Assyrians. So he that dasheth in pieces, this scatterer, is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches." Now I just said that Nahum is difficult among other reasons because it's often hard to tell who his audience is in a given line. This one is a particularly difficult passage because is he speaking to Assyria or is he speaking to Judah? Uh, Is he talking about Assyria coming to dash in pieces Israel? Or is he talking about someone else, Babylonians, coming to dash the Assyrians into pieces? Hmm, that's that's a tricky one. Uh, In some ways, the answer could be both. Because yes, beware people of Israel and Judah. A scatterer is coming from the north, Assyria, to scatter you to the four winds. But then again, be careful, Assyrians. A scatterer is coming, the Babylonians, and they will conquer your kingdom and destroy you. But even that next phrase about the Lord turning away the excellency of Jacob, That's a tricky one to translate also, because is it a turning away or a turning back? In other words, if this is a message to the Assyrians saying, I'm going to turn away the splendor of Jacob. Or is it a message to the people of Israel saying, I will restore again. I'll turn it back to you, all your former glory in the day of the gathering. It's really hard to tell just on surface level. I guess in some ways we're left with this either way possibility, but that makes it all the more meaningful for us just to insert ourselves and say, well, either way, how does it relate to me? If a scatterer is coming, if I'm up against an enemy out there, what should I do by way of preparation? I love his list. Keep the munition. The NIV says, guard the fortress. The ESV says, man the ramparts. All these other translations really do give some added insight. And for us to prepare for whatever's coming, that, that's really good counsel. Guard the fortress. Look up to the watchmen on the tower and honor their warnings and their words. Do we have enough ammunition? How sharp is the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God that we're supposed to be wielding? How's, how's my armor? And have I taken upon myself the whole armor of God? Or just, just some bits and pieces. How's my shield of faith? Is my faith broad enough to protect everything about me? Or am I hiding behind something much, much smaller? Keep the munition. Watch the way. Great advice also. And in fact, watch the watchers of the way. Keep your eyes on prophets and apostles who are trying to prepare us. Make thy loins strong. Great counsel there as well. Brace yourself. Get ready, whether that's spiritually or temporally, whether that's mentally or emotionally. And finally, fortify thy power mightily. Fortify your power. Are you strengthening those around you? They may come back to strengthen or even save you. We're all in this together. And for us to do these things in the face of whatever shatterers and scatterers are, are joining against us, this is good advice for us to follow. Because the battle is coming. It's already here. As Elder Maxwell said, it's a real war with real casualties. And we know far too many of those casualties personally. So notice what Nahum says in verse 3 and 4. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. Are we picturing blood-red soldiers? The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. Some render that glittering chariots. That's the flaming torches. It's sunlight reflecting, flashing off the metal. The fir trees shall be terribly shaken. Some suggest, is, is, this, is he depicting a forest of spears being brandished before the enemy? Looks like a, a pine forest. And all they're shaking as they're coming forward, marching towards the foe. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. And again, their scholar suggests these chariots flashing around like fire, darting around like lightning. This is intense battle imagery. Is this what the Israelites are facing as the Assyrians are bearing down on them? Is this what the Assyrians are facing as the Babylonians bear down on them? All of the above. Is it what we're facing with the wicked world? Does it sometimes feel like we're up against a forest of fir trees, spears shaking before us, chariots on the move, jostling one against the other, who can come and bear down on us fastest and first? This, and yet, flip it all around. Because how does the Lord describe his kingdom upon the earth? Fair as the sun, clear as the moon, and terrible as an army with banners. We've got a few fir trees of our own that we can shake in the face of the enemy. There's something powerful about all of this, but it is battle imagery. It is a real war and we need to be mustering our forces, preparing. In verse 5 and 7, he goes on, he shall recount his worthies, and this is most likely the king, that's the he, shouting to his officers, that's, those are the worthies, they shall stumble in their walk, they shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared, but it's going to be too little too late. He warns, the gates of the rivers shall be opened, And Nineveh was built on the Tigris River. Some scholars have even suggested in the battle when Assyria was attacked and Nineveh was leveled by the Babylonians, was there flooding at that time? Were the gates of the rivers opened? The palace shall be dissolved as the whole city is brought to its knees. And Huzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves tabering upon their breasts. That last image is that of slaves, these maids moaning and mourning, cooing like doves, it sounds, as they beat themselves in the chest as a sign of lamentation. Do you remember when Isaiah talks about the fall of Babylon and how devastated Babylon will feel, and yet the rest of the world will rejoice? That's the case in... Revelation chapter 18, when Babylon is brought to its knees, the merchant city is now out of business and everyone is lamenting that, well, how am I going to buy and purchase and sell and and get ahead in life? Well, that's what's happening here. The city has been dissolved. The, The mighty have stumbled in the way. And while that's bad news for the Ninevites, that is good news for the Israelites. Their enemy is being defeated. In verse 8, Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. The New International Version renders that first line, Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. You remember Jeremiah's old warning that Israel had committed two sins. The first was rejecting the Lord, but the second was replacing him with a broken cistern? You had a fountain of living water and instead you gave that up to, to carve out a leaky swimming pool? A, a broken cistern? That's the idea behind this passage with the Ninevites. You're a pool that is draining away. All of your strength is seeping through the fissures in the rock. And even though you're standing there trying to stay strong, stand, stand, they're They're, they're told. They will flee and none will look back. This is full retreat. And in now, instead of buying all of your wares, you merchant city, what are they doing? They're plundering her riches. Verse 9 and 10, Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold. For there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. At least that's what it seems like. It Seems like there's an an infinite supply. Oh no! Just we just wait. It'll quickly run out, to the point that then she'll say, "She is empty, and void, and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness." Great imagery for fear, for trembling. There's nothing left in the merchant city. It's all been cleaned cleaned out. Nothing left for Babylon, or in this case, Assyria, to offer you. Verse 11 and 12, where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked and the the lion's whelp, and none made them afraid. In other words, what's now become of Nineveh, where all the old lions prowled? He says, the lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps and strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven, at least the old way they did. You see, lions were prominent in Assyrian art as the symbol of the empire. That's how strong and mighty we are. Uh, in America, we talk about the American eagle. But in England, I talk about the British lion. And the Assyrian lion was along those lines. And yet, how is it being described now? Sure, in the old days, you could tear pieces enough to feed your young to provide for the lionesses. But that day is over. And there will be nothing left for you. Remember that scene in The Lion King? That Disney movie? When Scar is in charge? He's driven out. He killed Mufasa. Drove out uh, Simba. (laughs) It's been a while since I've seen this. My kids are too old now. Uh, But when the when Pride Rock is no longer surrounded by, by the fertile savanna. It's now, it's now death and destruction as far as the eye can see. It's the realm for scavengers, hyenas, instead of the lion presiding as king of the beasts. It's interesting to see Assyria along those lines. And for us to picture a wicked world in that kind of imagery... Why would I put all my eggs in that basket if I were to... It's like, why did I hold on to my stock in Blockbuster Video? I I didn't. I don't have any stock. Uh, But that, it it no longer exists. And for us to put our stock in Assyria or buy bonds in Babylon, it's not worth it. Because that. it looks like a lion today. There's a a bull market. No, it will be brought down like a bear. It will be an old lion that can no longer provide for its pride. In verse 13 then, he concludes this chapter, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I will burn her chariots in the smoke and the sword shall devour thy young lions and I will cut off thy prey from the earth and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. I mean, what did you expect when you turned against the God of Israel? He's not someone you want to offend. He's a God worth coming to know and coming to honor and obey and follow. Don't imagine things against him. He's not that kind of God. And then Nahum gives one last chapter, which contains one last warning to his target audience there in Nineveh. In verse 1, 2, and 3, he says, Woe to the bloody city. So there you get an, an image of violence. It is all full of lies and robbery. So there you get an image of corruption. Remember those, violence and corruption. The prey departeth not... And you could read that to suggest that it's got such a stranglehold upon its people that no one can escape. The prey departeth not. Then again, the New International Version translates that they are never without victims. So there's always prey. It never departs until it's always, there's always another, every day it breeds another, a new sucker. Someone else that I can pawn off my wares and, and purchase their souls with what they're purchasing from me. There's always more blood to shed, more lies to tell, more robberies to commit. So he says, the noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots, all that noise of war. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there is a multitude of slain, a great number of carcasses. There is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. That's a pretty disgusting visual image. Massive casualties, corpses and carcasses as far as the eye can see. Well, in a way, this reminds me of the flood. Massive casualties on a global scale because of what? If you remember how the way Noah described it and what he cried repentance against, it was violence and corruption, just like you're seeing here a bloody city full of lies and robbery. And does, has our violence crossed the point of no return? Has our corruption gotten to the point where have we gone too far? Or can we change, turn things around, repent? In verse 4 and 5, it gets worse for them, hopefully not for us, Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts, behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. The way he's describing violence and corruption in verse 1, 2, and 3 now turns into immorality and idolatry in 4 and 5. You see an objectification of people and a commodification of people. And prostitution is such an example of that. Where a person has become completely objectified. And now their own person, their body, becomes a commodity to buy or sell. That's what spiritual Babylon or spiritual Assyria has always been after. Again, you see that in Revelation 18. Where there's a whole list of things, it's like the Sears catalog, the Wells Fargo wagon, uh, Amazon Prime Black Friday deals, and they're being advertised. And the way it's described, it's all this amazing stuff and precious stones and and wood and spices and all these things. But then it gets down to the end, and you really see in the in the fine print what he's what Babylon or Assyria has been after all along. What are they really selling? Slaves and souls of men. It's a chilling passage there in Revelation 18. Equally chilling here in Nahum to see personified as a prostitute talk about a slave once the soul of a man or woman has come under bondage. And what's the Lord going to do since that prostitute still will not repent? He's going to turn that he's going to discover her skirt and show the nation their nakedness. Now, you remember back in Isaiah chapter 3 when I talked about the daughters of Zion and he basically turned them inside out so the world could see what they really made of on the inside. A whited sepulcher. So let's clear out the whitewashing on the outside and show the inside full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That's how Jesus teaches it. In Isaiah's case, forget the well-set hair Look at at the reality, which is baldness. Forget the, the, the trappings of beauty on the outside because inside there's nothing but filth. And this prostitute, who again is going to try to look as good as possible on the outside so she can successfully commodify herself. The day will come where she will be stripped naked to the point where everyone sees exactly what she is. No makeup on no finery and they will turn away in disgust as she turns away in shame remember nakedness means you're not covered and covering is the hebrew word for atonement they're left with none of that he then says in verse six and seven i will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile i will set thee as a gazing stock which is so fitting since the world used to look at you in wonder, in awe, oh, mighty Assyria, mighty Babylon. But now, it's still looking, but it's looking for a completely different reason. How has the city fallen, as Revelation 18 says? Oh, how, how art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning, as Isaiah 14 says. Nahum goes on, It shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who shall bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? And remember Nahum's name means comfort. There's been one here all this time. A prophet. You just won't listen to him. You'd rather turn away from that comfort. And what will you be left with? You'll be wasted. People will bemoan you. Which again is what we saw in Isaiah 14 and Revelation 18. Bemoaning a wicked world that is no longer giving us all the the pleasures that we once enjoyed. Nahum then says in verse 8 through 10, art thou better than populace? No. And no is the city of Thebes. It was a major city in southern Egypt. It's one that Assyria had already conquered. And so definitely felt like, oh yeah, we we can handle it. We're, We're stronger than Egypt. We're better than populace. No. Oh, are you really? He says, that was situate among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lubium were her thy helpers. You see, Thebes had all kinds of allies. But how'd that turn out for her? You Assyrians should know, since you conquered her, no one could defend her. Well, now the roles will reverse. He says, yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets. And they cast lots for her honorable men. All her great men were bound in chains. You know this, Assyria. Egypt couldn't stand up to you. You were the bigger fish. But there's a still bigger one waiting right behind you. And just like Egypt could not stand up to Assyria, Assyria will not be able to stand up to Babylon. Again, there's an underlying message here since there's so many fish waiting in the wings to come and gobble their predecessor. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted? Got a whole statue here. And yes, the head of gold will collapse in favor of the chest of silver or the trunk of bronze or the legs of iron or the feet of iron and clay. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. An hour of pomp, an hour of show. That's all there is, though. And yet, what's the last one? What finally defeated the entire statue? Oh yeah, the stone. A stone cut out of the mountain without hands. This is good news for Israel. Thy Lord reigneth. And Zion will be the biggest fish of them all. He will swal- It will swallow every earthly kingdom that went before it. In verse 11 and 12, he says, Thou also shalt be drunken, or you'll stagger like a drunkard when you see all this. Thou shalt be hid, or in other words, you'll go into hiding. Thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. You'll want to hide among them. You'll seek refuge, allies, arm of strength, anywhere you can find it. But none of that's going to work. He says, All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, They shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. That's a great analogy. On my mission, uh, Puerto Rico, it was so lush, so tropical, that there were always trees. Fruit was always in season. And we would walk by uh, by trees uh, just on our walks, you know, out in the streets or in the countryside, and there'd be a lemon tree and grab a lemon or an orange tree or a mango tree. And there was just always fruit everywhere. If it was high in the branches and you couldn't climb up to it, well, if it was sufficiently ripe, all you had to do was shake a branch and it would drop off and you could catch it. Well, that's how easy a harvest it will be for the Babylonians when they finally come bearing down upon the Assyrians. (laughs) You Assyrians, all Babylon has to do is shake you and you will fall right into their devouring mouth. Next in verse 13, Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women, which is certainly no longer politically correct, but what he basically just said there is, you guys fight like girls. Okay? Thy people in the midst of thee are women. That's, he's reducing them to that as far as this, these manly armies are concerned. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Those would be the bars keeping the gates closed. If fire can devour those, think how easily the gates can be forced open. You see how he's de- portraying Nineveh as completely defenseless, wide open to attack, no one to be able to defend you. How was that for the arm of flesh? It's looking kind of withered these days. He then adds in verse 14 and 15, draw the waters for the siege. It's what King Hezekiah had been trying to do, to get, dig that tunnel and get the water in. That way we have sources of living water within, no longer just broken cisterns. So draw the waters for the siege, fortify thy strongholds, Are we returning to that earlier advice we got about having your munitions and guarding your your walls and making sure that the troops are in order? So draw waters, fortify strongholds, go into clay, tread the mortar, make strong the brick kiln. That way you can fortify things. You can add another layer of protection. Mount ever higher the walls and the towers. Because what are you up against? There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the cankerworm. Oh, yes, make thyself many as the cankerworm. Make thyself many as the locusts. These armies of devouring insects will come to infest the land. So you better get ready for it. Makes me wonder, honestly, if Nahum is speaking sarcastically there in this part of his poem. Just saying there's nothing you're going to be able to do because like locusts, the Babylonians will descend upon you and leave nothing in their wake. But once again, if this is advice that the Assyrians would not accept, is it counsel that we are willing to follow? Like we saw in the earlier passage, can we implement these tactics and preparations as well? Can we draw water? Do we have sufficient living water to survive the drought? Are our strongholds sufficiently fortified Do we have the Lord on our side? Are we prepared for the battle? Unfortunately for the Assyrians, when they should have been multiplying troops, since the enemy troops will be multiplied like the locusts, what were they multiplying instead? Look at verse 16 and 17. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The cankerworm spoileth and fleeth away. The crowned are as the locusts and thy captains as the great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away and their place is not known where they are. The problem with the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they were so focused on self-aggrandizement, self-promotion, that they didn't take any time for self-protection. They wanted to get ahead temporally and it cost them to the point they could no longer stay ahead militarily. In our case, are we guilty of similar problems where we put all our eggs in in the world's basket instead of in the basket of Zion, of of, of God. And when we should have been multiplying our spiritual strength. Instead, we just kept checking our bank balance. No wonder he then says in verse 18 and 19, Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. And with that final question, he ends his little book. It's interesting because his partner prophet, Jonah, if you want to put them together, they're both crying repentance against Nineveh. They're both warning them of coming destruction. Nahum didn't want the destruction to happen. Jonah did. In Jonah's case, his book ended with a question too. And it was that question left lingering in the air. Should not I spare Nineveh? Well, if you answer Jonah's final question with Nahum's final question, the answer would be no. It was yes in Jonah's case because the people repented. It's no in Nahum's case because the people did not. But the question here, upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? Of course, there's no one to comfort you. No Nahum in your life. Because you've rejected me. You've rejected God. And you have attacked everyone in your path. Conquering kingdom after kingdom. Who hasn't your wickedness affected negatively? makes you wonder if the Lord has similar words of warning to the wicked world in our day or to the adversary of our souls to whom the Lord can also say upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. Every one of us is a member of the walking wounded as all of us have wounds, however grievous. But unlike Assyria's wounds, where Nahum said, there is no healing for thy bruises. There is healing for ours. And it comes through the ultimate Nahum, the ultimate comforter and consoler, even Jesus Christ. To understand his role in all of this, that he, talk about a shepherd that does not slumber. While we are scattered upon the mountains, God is sending forth hunters and fishers to find us wherever we might be. He is sending out his chosen people to find those that would be chosen if only they knew how. There seems to be that promise implied by this final passage. Assyria, it's too late for them, but it's not too late for us. And if we will trust in the God of Israel, if we will stop imagining evil things against him, if we will know that his anger is slow in coming, and that his mercy is ever extended, if we'll only take it and change, then hope lies ahead for us rather than destruction. We will outlive the Assyrians. And that's the promise that Nahum gives to us all. The challenge comes with Habakkuk because the Assyrians are simply replaced by the Babylonians. And just because you overcame one temptation doesn't mean you're forever off the hook. Because another enemy is waiting in the wings. Another empire that swallowed up the one you were so concerned about. Ooh, Is this an even bigger challenge ahead? Well, Babylon becomes the one that is ultimately synonymous with the wicked world. It's the image that, keep, that, that future prophets will always fall back on. Including throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. So as we turn to the book of Habakkuk, we see... Oh, so much of what Nahum was saying about the Assyrians, Habakkuk is going to say about the Babylonians. Now, as I said at the beginning of this week's lesson, we know precious little about Habakkuk, other than the fact that he was a prophet. Habakkuk is writing against the Babylonians, so we assume that he must have been later chronologically than Nahum was, most likely in the years leading up to the Babylonian destruction. Uh, which would make him a contemporary or near contemporary of people like Jeremiah and Lehi or Ezekiel and Daniel, although he's on the the, the front end instead of the back end because of that timing and because of the strength of his message, there's amazing things that we'll see in the next three chapters. He's actually brought up in an apocryphal book called bell and the dragon. Uh, Bell and the dragon is an interesting work. It's kind of like fan fiction on the book of, of Daniel, (laughs) Because Daniel would have been a a near contemporary as well. But Daniel's off in Babylon. In fact, at some point when Daniel's in the lion's den, according to this apocryphal book, uh, an angel comes to see Habakkuk back in Israel. And he picks up Habakkuk by the hair and whisks him off to Babylon. Uh, Food in hand. He's been out gathering food, I believe. And he drops him off in the lion's den where Habakkuk then feeds Daniel. Now, again, this is all apocryphal. Uh, But I do love the thought of, okay, yeah, the king of Persia was fasting that night. The lions were fasting that night. But I guess Daniel didn't have to. Habakkuk came through for him. Either that or he was using his own food to keep the lions at bay. I don't know. Uh, But what's interesting, again, is that this later author, whoever wrote the book, Bell and the Dragon, decided on Habakkuk as one of their heroes. Well, that, we would say, is, is non-scriptural and non-historical. But what Habakkuk does give us lets us know why he should be our hero. What he writes is amazing. So verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, and the beginning of his book is amazing. It starts with a familiar phrase, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And in his case, you probably could take the word burden even more literally than usual. Because his people at this time were suffering under the burden of Babylon. But whereas most prophets then begin by speaking for God, Habakkuk begins by speaking to him. And he's got a question that's been weighing heavy as part of this burden. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save? Does that sound like Job? God, why am I suffering when I'm righteous and don't deserve it? Does it sound like Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail? Oh God, where art thou and where is the pavilion that covereth my hiding place? How long will thy pure eye see what we're suffering? How long will your ear be pierced with our cries and yet you do nothing to help us? That was Joseph's Habakkuk moment. But if you recall what the Israelites or what the people of Judah are up against... The northern kingdom's already been scattered by the Assyrians, but now the Babylonians are bearing down on us, and we're about to be destroyed. That was Jeremiah's caution and warning all throughout his ministry. And here's Habakkuk wondering why. And how long? In some ways, yes, we deserve it. But I've been crying repentance my whole ministry, and so has every other prophet that we could name. And will the people change before it's too late? Or will we be destroyed by the Babylonians? Because even those of us that are repentant and are worthy, are we going to suffer alongside the wicked? How long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? That is a hard... You know, that's a verse in Habakkuk that we quote even without knowing it. When we're suffering when we're struggling, when we're wondering where God is in all of this. This is the problem of evil. This is what they call theodicy. But in a more personal vein, this is what we call human suffering. And we all deal with it, whether or not we voice that exact question. He he builds on the question in verse 3 and 4, wondering, Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. There's spiritual problems. There's social problems. There's economic problems. Everywhere the eye can see. Why are you showing that to me? Why are you making me behold it? He then says, therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Have you ever felt that way? Just wondering why things are the way they are and wondering if they'll ever get better. If things will ever change. Do we sometimes worry that the law is slacked and not just human law, not doing what it's supposed to, to protect the innocent and punish the guilty, but even divine law. What's taking so long? That's Habakkuk's concern. That's the Israelites, the people of Judah's concern. It's the early saints' concern. It's often our own. And do we sometimes feel like we're caught in this endless loop of iniquity and there's no way to get out of it? Will the Savior ever come? Hasten the day. Cut short your work in righteousness. Well, verse 5, the answer starts to come. Behold ye among the heathen and regard. So look at this. And wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe though it be told you. Now, that is one of those passages that has such a long afterlife. What you see here, first of all, you will wonder marvelously. Does that sound like Isaiah's marvelous work and a wonder? It's the same thing. And what was he referring to? The restoration. It's going to blow your mind. In fact, the way Habakkuk says it, I love. You're not going to believe it even if I tell it to you. I mean, you're going to have to see it. You're going to have to behold this wonder, and it'll leave you wondering jaw dropped you'll be marveling like is this real rubbing your eyes am I seeing really what I'm seeing because God is finally coming through everything I'd wished for prayed for hoped for has happened and it's unbelievable that's the fun thing about that word unbelievable it's it's so hard to it's so good it's hard to believe it's the word incredible when you think of it that's incredible incredible incredible. If it's not credible, it's not believable. It's the same idea there. And that's what I love about when the, the restoration is incredible. When somebody, you know, some skeptic out there says, "Now I just can't believe in Joseph Smith or the, or the Book of Mormon. I can't believe, or even you know, Christian skeptics, or skeptics of Christianity, I should say. I can't believe in an atonement. I can't believe in a resurrection. Part of me wants to say, "Yeah, neither can I, but I do. I'll admit it is unbelievable, but in the most amazing of ways. Yes, it is incredible, but that's what makes it all the more incredible because it's true. And what you're going to see will wipe away all that you've been suffering through. Because God will, God will come through for you. It's his marvelous work. It's his wonder. Yes, it'll seem too good to be true. But it's true. No wonder Paul quotes that verse to the astounded Jews of Antioch. He says, Behold ye despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Because there was Paul declaring it unto them, and they wouldn't believe him. Or fast forward and get to Jesus. In 3 Nephi, he says in verse 20, chapter 21, verse 9, For in that day, for my sake, shall the Father work a work, which shall be a great and a marvelous work among them. And there shall be among them those who will not believe it, although a man shall declare it unto them. Paul, Jesus, all looking back to Habakkuk of all people, saying that was a beautiful thing to say. Now in Paul's and Jesus' case, they were talking restoration. They were talking resurrection. They were talking atonement. They were talking God's ultimate work and glory. And yes, it's too good to be true, but yet, and yet it's still true. In the immediate that's a higher layer on the layer cake, though. In the immediate context, as far as what Habakkuk was talking about, in the short term, It's interesting what he says in the next two verses, 6 and 7. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, those Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. You could rephrase that. They are a law unto themselves. They do whatever they want. And yet God is going to use them to chasten Judah. He's going to use them to carry them off captive to Babylon, which will just increase the scattering of Israelites across the known world, making the gathering of Israel all the more glorious when people from all nations are brought back with their family, with their friends, gathering all back into the fold. Remember, it was never just about you chosen people. You're meant to choose everyone. So even if I have to scatter you to get you dispersed among them, I've got the long game in mind. Well, but but to use Babylon to do that. Again, we're back to what we saw with Nahum. Why, you're going to use Assyria to punish us? Assyria deserves to be punished. You're right, and I'll take care of that too. In a similar vein, here, what is this? this work that you'll wonder marvelously at. What's this thing that you're not going to believe even if you're seeing it or hearing about it? It's the fact that God is going to use Babylon to do his work. And Babylon against Judah is actually for Judah's ultimate good? That doesn't make any sense. Or does it? Will I believe that? Even though somebody's telling me And a prophet is reassuring, this is exactly what God has in mind. It's part of his divine plan. That don't think that God has forsaken or forgotten you just because you're captive off in Babylon. I'll send an Ezekiel to preach, to reassure. I'll send a Daniel. You'll have friends in high places. Later, I'll send an Esther sent to the kingdom for such a time as that. I will be with you even in Babylon. How's that for a marvelous work and a wonder? But yes, there'll be some redemptive turbulence on the way. It will be redemptive, trust me. But it will be turbulent, trust me on that one too. Okay, Believe me, even if you find that unbelievable. Got it? Next he says in verse 8 and 9, Their horses also are swifter than the leopards, and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. Now that's frightening imagery to describe a coming enemy. Leopards, wolves, eagles swooping down upon the prey, and yet that's what the Babylonians will feel like. Will we repent in order to avoid that fate? Or will we succumb to it? In verse 10 and 11, They shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Now, he just summarized a whole slew of Babylonian history right there. They'll come into town just like the Assyrians did. They will scoff at the kings, scorn the princes, deride the strongholds, just like Rabshakeh, that wicked counselor, did when the Assyrians came. Babylonians, they're going to, in fact, they'll be more successful than the Assyrians were because the Assyrians couldn't conquer Jerusalem. The Babylonians will have no problem. And they'll be able to laugh their way beyond those walls, as they force out the people of Israel, deriding every stronghold. But just like the Assyrians before, who then took all the glory to themselves and were punished as a result, the same will happen with the Babylonians. They're imputing that power to their gods instead of honoring the God of Israel. And then Habakkuk asks another question. He started this chapter with one. Well, as we approach its end, he's got another. Verse 12 and 13. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? And we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity, which therefore begs this final question. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. Now that passage, 12 and 13 is really key to what we're seeing in Habakkuk. Because it combines some things that Habakkuk knows with some things that Habakkuk doesn't know. Or doesn't quite understand. That's what's leaving him scratching his head. And again, I love his vulnerability. I love his openness. It's the courage of Job. It's the courage and faith of Joseph Smith in Liberty. It's It's wondering how, because of what I know about you, God, why is this happening? And what does he know about God? Notice the phrases. I know you're from everlasting. You're eternal. Well, that should tell you then that I can afford to play the long game. That you can be patient and have faith. Because I'm here for the duration. I'm from everlasting. What else does he know? He knows that we shall not die, that ultimately there is a resurrection, that there is hope. Oh, so I guess I can afford to play the long game too. And even death isn't the end of the story. Huh. So I can trust you even beyond this life. Okay. Along those same lines, the we shall not die is this collective. There's going to be a righteous remnant remaining, isn't there? As long as I hold on to that, then it's not complete annihilation and there'll be someone left to turn to us. Saviors on Mount Zion. Gatherers of the scattered. Okay, I can trust in that as well. I can trust in God's judgment. I can trust in his corrective hand. And I can trust in God's pure eyes. I have to hold on to all of that. Those are things I know. And the things I know will always trump the things that I don't know. And what was that specifically? That final question. Why are things happening this way? How can you look upon those that deal treacherously and not rebuke them? Not defeat them when they are acting like our enemies. That's, that's the thing we wrestle with. Why do the wicked sometimes prosper and the righteous sometimes suffer? but we have to keep those question marks in the context of all the exclamation points that surround it. So I love the way Habakkuk asked that question. It's in the midst of all of these exclamations. I know what I know, and that should get me through the things that I don't yet know. Then verse 14 and 15, an interesting role reversal hinted at in this passage. It begins, and makest men as the fishes of the sea. Well, who? Who does that? Who makest men? And if you go back to the previous verse, it's these wicked people that are devouring people that are more righteous than they are. Why are the wicked prospering at the, righte- at the expense of the righteous? And here's this description of it. They're making men as the fish of the sea, as the creeping things. They have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their drag, therefore they rejoice and are glad. Now that's a confusing verse until we realize that fishermen is the focal point here. When he talks about taking them up with the angle, remember fishermen are also called anglers. They've baited the hook or they've cast out the net. They're dragging their catch back to shore. And when, as he describes the Babylonians in these terms, that they're going to gather you up in their wicked way. Not the gathering of Israel in the righteous way. They are going to, they'll be the men and you'll be the fish. You'll be the creeping thing and they'll crush you. In in a way, this is a reversal of the creation. Because remember in the creation account, man and woman, Adam and Eve, were given dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowls of the air and every every creeping thing. They were rulers over them. And Adam and Eve themselves had no rulers over them. Well, no ruler but God, that is. Well, these Babylonians won't be ruled by God. They have no ruler then. And they're treating the, the Israelites, the people of Judah, like mere fish or creeping things. Even when it says, that makest men as the fishes of the sea, the word there in Hebrew is Adam. adam. They're making Adam into a fish. They're taking people that are supposed to act and they're forcing them to be acted upon. They're taking away their God given agency. And now they're just fish unable to escape the net. Creeping things that can't creep away fast enough from their enemies. Interesting what the wicked world is trying to do, turning agents into objects, Sac- forcing us to sacrifice our agency, addictive sin. Oh, there's so much of this in the world. And once we're caught in the world's net and dragged back to shore, what does the wicked world then say? What do the Babylonians believe? Verse 16 and 17. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? Just like Isaiah said of the Assyrians, and of the Babylonians, here we see it again, they're going to take credit to themselves. All of it. They, Like Isaiah said, they will say, by the strength of my hand have I done this. How did you conquer Israel? Well, truth would say, well, the God of Israel simply used me as a form of chastisement of his people. But what will the Babylonians say and said? No, it was our net, and so let us honor our mighty net. It was our drag, and so let us burn incense to our drag. Talk about looking for false gods anywhere you can find them when the true God of Israel is just above you all along. Turn, look up, turn to him. And even you Babylonians have a chance to change. They just won't take it. So Habakkuk 2 comes. And with it, an amazing message of patience and faith for the Israelites. Because yes, you're on the receiving end of all this Babylonian destruction. But the day will come where Babylon itself is destroyed. And that will spell deliverance to you. Because your captors are taken captive. Once there's that role reversal, the fish will no longer be caught in the net. You'll be Adam again. A man whose only ruler is the Lord. So he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Or another way to put that, and how he will answer my complaint. How is God going to respond to all these questions that I'm asking him? That's a beautiful role of a prophet as well. We call them watchmen on the tower, and you get that same idea here. I'll stand on my watch, I'll be set on my tower. But it's not just that I'm watching for the enemy coming from below, I'm also looking for the word coming from above. They are closer to the Lord in that way, to receive institutional revelation, counsel for the collective. And that's one thing Joseph was waiting for in Liberty Jail. One thing that Job was seeking, a direct response from God, to see, this this is Wilfred Woodruff in 1890. What do we do about all this This persecution. What do we do about plural marriage? This was 1978 with Spencer W. Kimball. Is it time yet? We've been waiting and hoping and praying for this for a long, long time. Can the priesthood and the blessings of the temple be extended to all of thy children? Of course there are yet revelations to come. And thankfully we have watchmen on the tower watching to see what God will say to them including how he will answer their questions. I'm sure they have plenty they are asking. In verse 2 and 3, Habakkuk says, the Lord answered me. So be patient. He's worth the wait. He asked all through chapter 1. He's finally getting an answer. And the Lord said to him, write the vision and make it plain upon tables or upon tablets, that he may run that readeth it, which could either mean write it down so a herald can run with the message and bring it to other people. Or that might mean write it down so big that even someone like racing by can read it. That's why they print the the text really big on billboards as you're flying past them on the freeway. Okay, So write it down and write it big so all the world can know. And here it is. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Just because judgment and justice seem to be slow in coming does not mean they'll never come. I may be slow to anger, but I will come down in judgment and justice upon your enemies. In the meantime, I'm trying to give them a chance to repent. And I'm trying to give you a chance to prepare. I'm trying to be with them and call them to repentance. I'm trying to be with you and calm your troubled hearts. I care about all my children after all. So be patient with me. It might be slow in coming. Just wait for it. That's what my father in law said to me about my wife when I was in the middle of months and months of proposing. He simply said, be patient. She's worth the wait. And she always has been. To see the Lord far, even more, far above that, I'll be worth the wait. Just trust me. Elder Maxwell once said that part of saying thy will be done to the Lord is also saying thy timing be done. And that might be the hardest part. I know God will come through. I just wish he'd do it a little sooner. I, I want the blessing now, or this promise in my patriarchal blessing is, can we speed this up? Can I get this now instead of later? It reminds me actually, of something Peter said about the second coming, as there was so much hope that Christ would return quickly, and that was 2,000 years ago. We're still waiting. He's still tarrying. But though it be long, it will surely come. Peter knew that. And so he says this in Second Peter three verse nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This goes back to what we saw earlier about God striking this precarious balance between hastening his work, shortening the day, and prolonging our time so that we can repent it makes it easier on one group but harder on the other and vice versa and so here he is in his perfect wisdom trying to balance things perfectly just don't call him a slacker because it's taking longer than you want please know that he's working on a whole lot of people and sometimes the delay in route for you is a chance for someone else to change just trust that he'll come. So what's the counsel that Habakkuk gives in verse 4? One of the most important verses anywhere in Scripture. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. So if it's pride that's pushing you on this, if it's pride that's forcing you to be impatient, if you're accusing God of never coming through and, and he's not worth the wait, then how should you respond instead? The second half of verse 4. But the just shall live by his faith. And the Hebrew word there would be more accurately translated by his faithfulness. His steadfastness. The Hebrew word means something like firmness and fidelity. In fact, back in Exodus 17 when Moses is supposed to raise his hands as the Israelites are fighting the Amalekites down in the valley below. Remember this story? And his hands are heavy because a battle takes a long time and so Aaron and her lift up the hands and at the end of the story when it says that Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun and thus they won the, won the battle that word for steady is the word used here for faith it's faithful it's steadfast it stays strong no matter how heavy things come with, become with the passage of time If it was just, hey, raise your hand, and and then we win, that's that's easy, but it doesn't, doesn't say much about us. No, it's holding our hands up the whole time. It's trusting that God is not slack concerning his promises, that he'll come through for us if we can just hold our hands steady, if we can remain steadfast, if we can be faithful, which also means being full of faith. What's so powerful about that passage is that it's one that Paul focuses on. Paul loved his Habakkuk, evidently. He quoted the previous passage about, it's still good, you're not even going to believe it. And in, to the Roman saints, he quotes this one. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. See, he just quoted Habakkuk too. To the Galatians, he quotes the same verse. In Galatians 3.11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for, and here he quotes it, the just shall live By faith. And then later in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 36 through 38, we read this. For ye have need of patience. Ah, Patience was what Habakkuk was suggesting all along. That after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while. So wait for it, wait for it. Though it tarry, just stay strong. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Can you see why Paul would love that passage so much to quote it and quote it and quote it again? Because Paul was waiting for the second coming. Paul was wrestling with doubters and skeptics and impatient saints not willing to wait upon the Lord. And so what did he keep on saying? The just shall live by faith. It was that promise. In the Romans version, in the Romans quote of Habakkuk, that a monk concerned about his own salvation had an epiphany that changed the history of the world. When Martin Luther read Romans 1 and heard Habakkuk's voice echoing across the ages, that's how we make it? We don't make it on our righteousness alone. I mean, obviously, God wants us to live faithfully. That's the Hebrew term. But he also wants us to live in faith in him. That he's not slack concerning the promises. He's going to come through for me. And if I can trust in his righteousness, when my righteousness falls short, then I can afford to be patient even with myself, along with everyone else around me. I can afford to be patient with God. I can, be, I can afford to be patient with the process. I can afford to be patient with loved ones that are struggling in their righteousness or in their own faith. Because the just shall live by faith and faithfulness. And we can trust in a God that's worth the wait. That was the game changer for Martin Luther he, in my opinion, overswung the pendulum, like we typically all do, and took it to the extreme of faith, or at least many of his followers, took it to the extreme of faith in faith alone, as opposed to faith and faithfulness together. And some are, sadly, imagining false things about a God who thinks, oh yeah, go ahead and take your hands down. They don't need to be firm as long as you believe in me and pay me some lip service. No, that's that's not what Martin Luther intended. It's certainly not what Paul intended. It's certainly not what Habakkuk intended. And, But for us to just see that passage in context, I, I love it the way Paul gives it to us in each of those three settings, but I love Habakkuk's probably best of all because here's a prophet who's wrestling with his own impatience his own lack of understanding why aren't things going better when we're trying our very best God where art thou in all of this what saw Job through his sufferings his faith and his faithfulness though I die I will trust in him right Though I die, I will not remove my integrity from him, from me. No. And, how, and what got Joseph Smith through Liberty Jail? He knew God. And he had faith in him and remained faithful to him. He lived by faith. And that carries him and carries us through anything we face. Thank you, Habakkuk, for that. Verse 5, he then adds, Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, which suggests he's never at rest. Proud, he's always looking for things. Wine, he's, he's, try, he's stumbling around in transgression. Who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Great analogy, Habakkuk. See, death and hell are never satisfied. And neither is Babylon. Death gobbles up everyone who ever lives. So does sin. No wonder Jacob described this two-headed monster as sin and death. Or as death and hell. And here Habakkuk is seeing or portraying Babylon as that same two-headed monster. And it is enlarging its desire. That's how much Babylon wants. Again, it's back to that passage I mentioned earlier from Revelation 18, that it's ultimately after the slaves and souls of men. It wants to gobble you up and Babylon has an insatiable appetite. He's never satisfied. But that's not the end of the story. In verse 6 and 7, shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him? In other words, people are going to mock and ridicule the king of Babylon which is exactly what happens in Isaiah 14. And what Habakkuk is going to give us from here on out is five taunts, okay? Five woes. That's how you can spot them. It'll be a woe. The first one, he says, they'll say, woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. See this insatiable appetite, just gobbling up anything in its wake, wanting to take over the whole world. That's the Babylonian empire. But woe to him. How long? Habakkuk asks, to him that ladeth himself with thick clay, and the thick clay there are like clay tablets where you're writing down like receipts for business, transactions and so on. So they're laden with thick clay, loaded with pledges, with loans. This is either you're rich because you're going into debt and here's all these IOUs, I owe people, or you're rich because those are IOUs that other people owe you. You're extorting money out of others. Either way, this is capitalism run amuck, and they're laden with thick clay trying to increase things that don't really belong to them. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee and thou shalt be for booties unto them? You see, your creditors will suddenly arise and call you to settle the accounts. And if you're unable to do it, all I have are these, these notes, these IOUs, these, these thick clay tablets. All I have now is worthless paper and broken promises. My wealth went up in smoke. And now I am the booty. I'm the prey to my creditors. In verse 8 and 9, Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. How's that for reaping what you sow? How's that for enforced empathy? Because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, of all that dwell therein, woe, here's the second one, woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Did you really think your wealth and power would save you in the day of reckoning? Just because your nest was high enough, you thought you could escape those scavengers or those predators that were prowling down below? I mean, earlier we saw the leopards and we saw the wolves, right? But what else did we see? Ah, yes, the eagles swooping down from above. Yeah, I don't think your nest is quite as safe as you think it is. Do we really think we can buy our way out of the consequences of our sins? In verse 10 through 12, he says, Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. So you brought this evil upon yourself, sinning against your own soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall. The beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe! And here's the third one. To him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. Think about that in terms of what our society is built upon. The way Habakkuk is giving it here to the Babylonians, your town is built with blood. Its foundation is iniquity. But what's, what's the building itself going to do? It's going to cry out against you. It will stand as witness number one for the prosecution. So it's amazing when it talks about stones crying out of the wall, beams out of the timber I mean to address society itself the, the societal structures that we inhabit and occupy and ask it oh, so what do you think about things how, how do you think we're doing and to have the stones and the timbers themselves say do you have any idea what we're made of we were built on the backs of oppression of the poor and the needy dishonesty Uh, greed, corruption, violence you name it, that's how we got ahead that's how we built this superstructure oh, be careful because that superstructure itself will testify against us as it begins to collapse all around us talk about the plumb line that Amos saw are we measuring up because if not those tilted timbers will let us know. When we see the untempered mortar that Ezekiel talked about, and the stones starting to shift under the weight of all this glory we keep heaping up as we build our own tower of Babel trying to reach heaven in our own way. How's that for a high nest, right? Oh no, those stones will crumble. Those beams will topple. It'll all come crashing down. Verse 13 and 14, keep looking for more woes. There's two more coming. Behold, it is not of the Lord of hosts that the people shall labor in the very fire. The New International Version renders that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire. It's going to all go up in smoke. Everything they've been working for. The people shall weary themselves for very vanity. (laughs) Why do we work so hard for things that do not matter? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, just like Isaiah prophesied. That was his words back in Isaiah 11 when he talked about millennial peace. And where does the water not cover the sea? Uh, the sea is water all the way down. <laughs> exactly. And the millennial rain, it will be the knowledge of God all the way down, all the way through. Everyone will know him. And once we do, talk about buyer's remorse. Why did I spend so much of my time and attention and talent on things that don't matter at all? When I could have been building the kingdom, when I could have been serving my fellow man or woman, when I could have been coming closer and closer to Christ. But now I've wearied myself for very vanity. And all that I labored to acquire has gone up in smoke. No wonder he says in verse 15 and 16, woe. Here's woe number four. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also. Well, I guess misery loves company. Uh, You don't want to drink alone. That thou mayest look on their nakedness? Ooh, but that's what you were doing that for? You were tricking people into making fools of themselves? In some ways, this is like the conspiring men that Doctrine and Covenants 89 talks about that are trying to convince others to fleece themselves. That's this idea of, let me get you drunk so I can look upon your nakedness. Let me intoxicate you with all of these incredible things that you can buy. And to get them all, yeah, you'll end up fleecing yourself. You'll end up selling your soul and you'll have nothing to show for it. He goes on, thou art filled with shame for glory. Or we could say, you have shame instead of glory. You were seeking glory. That's not what you ended up with. You had shame instead. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. There's a repetition of the drunkenness and nakedness, he said in the previous verse. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. How's that for a taste of your own medicine, a drink of your own wine? You'll be the one that ends up naked, exposed, even as you've been trying to strip everyone else of everything that they have. You're the one that's been trying to intoxicate them. Well, you'll be the one suffering with one heck of a hangover as you are spewing out the things that you consumed the night before. I mean, this is a graphic image. But boy, does it seem fitting. He says in 17, For the violence of Lebanon, or in other words, the violence you did to Lebanon, cutting down its cedars to enrich yourself, oh, that those cedars shall cover thee. You'll be crushed by the trees you've been cutting down. And the spoil of beasts, which made them afraid because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, of all that dwell therein. That phrase of the spoil of beasts, which made them afraid, I get a sense there that your feelings will shift from that of predator to that of prey. Whenever I watch those nature movies or or documentaries, and it shows a predator bearing down upon the prey, man, I get scared to death for the prey every time. I'm I'm always on the prey's side. even though the predator, I guess, has to eat too. But not eat like this. And those who have been rapacious and, and, and with an insatiable appetite trying to gobble up anyone else around them in order to get ahead, the day will come where you know what it feels like. A more enforced empathy yet again. As you become the prey to someone else's violence. Babylon, enjoy your time on the top because Persia is closer than you realize. And, again, that's why I love this metaphor of the cedars of Lebanon. Those that you're cutting down to be able to build your pleasant palaces. I don't know if anybody yelled timber in time because it came down and crushed you. Powerful, powerful images here. A few more. He says in verse 18 and 19, What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof hath graven it? The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols? What profit can they possibly give you? You made them. They can't make you. Woe! He says. This is his fifth and final one. Again, these taunts that people will raise against a fallen Babylon. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Awake! and to the dumb stone, Arise, it shall teach. Can you picture him just making fun of this, ridiculing their idolatry? Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, but there is no breath at all in the midst of it. He really is reducing this to the absurd, because it is absurd. That we would think that some graven image can turn around and do any, do any good to us. Yes, it looks good on the outside, but all that glitters is not gold. And underneath that golden facade is a dumb stone that can say nothing to you when you ask it for direction. Beware wear those things, I think he's suggesting, that have no breath. Catch the last phrase. There is no breath at all. Because remember, breath in Hebrew is the same word for wind. It's the same word for spirit. So beware of those things that will take and take and take and never give and those things that we seem to, to speak to it lovingly all the time and yet it can give us nothing back by way of direction. It has no voice. It has no breath. It has no spirit. On the other hand, verse 20 beautiful way to end this chapter but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. As opposed to silent stones and dumb idols, we have a God who is willing to speak out of his holy house. Where does that leave us? All ears. (laughs) May we keep silence before him, knowing he is in his holy temple. Knock on on an idol's door, and you'll realize there's no one home. But call to God in the temple and prepare yourself for a message from a God who loves you. He's home, after all. Chapter 3 then gives us one last chance to remember who this God is at home in his holy temple. And to do so, Habakkuk reminds them of the past to help them navigate the present. It's a great way to do it. In verse 1 and 2, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Yonoth, which is some type of poetry or song, most likely. He says or sings, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Not afraid in the bad way. Awe-inspired in a good way. The New International Version renders that. I have heard of your fame and stand in awe of your deeds. Ah, There's hearing the speech. That's being awestruck. The text then goes on, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In other words, repeat them in our day. Revive All the things you did in the past, in the midst of those years. Do them in the midst of these. All these incredible miracles you performed. He says, in the midst of the years, make known in wrath, which is what we're facing from Babylon. Remember mercy. And that's such a beautiful prayer to offer. When you are suffering, when you're struggling, when you're up against the world and feel that it's coming, crashing down upon you, pray to God that in wrath, he will remember mercy. Just like he did in the Exodus, just like he has done so many times throughout Israel's history, when the pride cycle had brought them down to the depths and they deserved to be destroyed. But when they humbly turned back to the Lord, he turned back to them. And despite wrath all around, he remembered mercy. That's the prayer of Habakkuk. And again, it's this sense of, I know what you've done in the past. Please do it again. He reviews some of those mighty works in the next few verses three through six God came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. And that's a bad translation. These horns are rays of light. Rays of light coming from his hand. There was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove us under the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. See how he's summing it up at the end, that last statement? If his ways are everlasting, then he hasn't changed. And the kind of God he's been in the past is the kind of God he'll be in the present and off into the future. This was the God of the Exodus. This was a God whose glory covered the heavens, who through the pestilence and the plague was able to deliver us from our bondage that light shining through darkness, a cloud of smoke, a pillar of fire, burning coals, how's that for Isaiah's experience, being purified by by God. Review the Old Testament. Here we are approaching its end. And see a God who has been powerful, who has been merciful, who has been a deliverer and a redeemer and a savior that's what he came to earth to do and once you realize who he was and couple it with the fact that his ways are everlasting then you know who he is and who he will forever be that you can completely trust in that though it tarry wait for it he'll come through I actually remember one year in seminary, the first year I ever taught New Testament, we were studying the miracles of Jesus. And saying to the man in, in the, in lying on this bed, unable to walk, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. And then the second breath, take up thy bed and walk. And there were so many miracles of healing that we studied in class that it wasn't till the end of class, it dawned on me that two of my students that semester might be thinking about those miracles in a different way. Because Cindy had spent her life in a wheelchair and Brandon had too. And I loved Cindy and I loved Brandon. They were such good celestial souls. But my heart went out to them as I thought of their perspective on these miracles of physical healing. And I wondered if they wished They've been living in New Testament times. I wondered if there was a sense like, you did that, you were were that kind of God. Why aren't you that kind of God? Why are miracles in the past tense instead of the present? And two things struck me. One was to that man lying in the bed, lower down through the roof tiles, two statements from the Lord. One was physical healing, which is why he came. But one was spiritual healing. And if you could only pick one of those two, which would it be? I'll stay in this bed the rest of my life if I can just be spiritually clean. Because then I can return home. And I thought of Cindy and Brandon and thought, that miracle is still as available today as it ever was. And if you could only pick one, you can be clean. And those two were. The other thought that crossed my mind is, why isn't the present tense God like the past tense one? And the thought came thundering in, he is. His ways are everlasting, Habakkuk reminds us. And we still live in a day of miracles. And if we don't, then where is our faith? Mormon would ask. It has to be his time. It has to be his way. It has to be his will. And we might have to tarry But in the meantime, the just shall live by faith and faithfulness. So keep the hands steady and tarry, because the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Bank on that. To every Cindy, to every Brandon, to every one of us, his ways are everlasting. Now, not only is God the God of the Exodus, though, he's also the God of the elements, and it's all under his control. So Habakkuk says in verse 7 through 9, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. This is the same king of creation that Nahum mentioned about rebuking the sea and drying up rivers. Red Sea, Jordan, he's done it all. In verse 10 and 11, The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. This is the same god that caused the sun to stand still so joshua could continue and ultimately win his battle and god will lengthen our days so we can win whatever wars we need to we just have to believe that his ways are everlasting and it's the same god now as it was then in verse 12 and 13 thou didst march through the land in indignation Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger, thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck, Salah. That's a harder one to understand. But if God is marching through the land in indignation, if he's threshing the heathen in his anger, We've gone from Exodus through the wilderness wanderings, crossing the Red Sea, crossing the Jordan River, right? All these miracles all along the way. For what? To enter a promised land that was occupied. And yet that the Lord, in his indignation, would march through, thresh the heathen to clear out space for the chosen people to dwell. That's the promise there. This is the salvation he's offered to his anointed his chosen, each of whom is meant to be anointed to go out and anoint everyone else, to be a savior on Mount Zion, to be a mini Messiah, bringing the fullness of the gospel to all of God's children around the world. He says in 14 and 15, thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. You can rephrase that. You took the enemy's own weapons and turned them back on them. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. But God wouldn't let them. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. God, throughout Israel's history, led Israel's armies and conquered, defeated, vanquished Israel's enemies. Even with Babylon bearing down on you, trust that he'll do the same. Then, having recalled all that God had done in the past, Habakkuk's faith is renewed for the present. He stands in awe of the God of Israel. He says in verse 16, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. You get a sense there at how Overwhelmed Habakkuk is with all that still lies ahead. His his knees knocking, his trembling within himself. This is a day of trouble. And yet God can offer me rest. That's all he's seeking. For the Lord to come and fight Israel's battles, he will, if we'll have him. If you remember the great line in We thank thee, O God, for a prophet, We have proved him in days that are past. And the wicked who fight against Zion, Babylon personified, shall surely be smitten at last. That day has come as far as Habakkuk is concerned. So he says in verse 17 and 18, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, The labor of the olive shall fail and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold and there shall be no herd in the stalls. How's that for utter devastation? There's nothing left. Yet, Habakkuk declares, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. No matter what current conditions look like, I will trust in the Lord. For he is good. And because he is good, it's all good. I worry sometimes that when we're in the midst of something difficult, like Habakkuk just described, and there's no fig trees and there's no blossoms and no vines and it seems like there's no hope. And we pray for something and we just feel that overwhelming spirit of comfort and peace and reassurance. And sometimes we mistake that to mean this one thing that I'm asking for right now in this moment is about to happen. You know what I mean by that? We feel the reassuring spirit of God. And it's like, this is going to work. What I'm asking for is going to come. And sometimes that's the case. But sometimes it's not that the Lord is saying, this is going to be good. Rather, it's all good. Because I'm good. I'm aware of where you are. I know your circumstance. I play the long game my ways are everlasting. I'll be here for you. And though it tarry, wait for it. Because I have, I have your own salvation at heart. And sometimes patience and faith is what I'm trying to develop in you. Not just an early escape. To me, there's something profound about the way Habakkuk is finishing his little book. Rejoicing in the Lord. How did he start? God, what is going on? I don't understand this. How long will we have to go through? Are you not seeing this? He's wrestling with his faith until he realizes, wait a minute, that's the key to all of this. Not just getting out of the situation, because by the end, as he's describing these final verses, the situation has not improved some ways, maybe it's worse with nothing blossoming and no blessings as far as the eye can see. And yet, with spiritual eyes, I can see those blessings. They're far off, but I know they're on their way. And and the just shall live by faith. Hmm. Faith in a God of the past that's no different as God of the present. No wonder I can yet rejoice in the Lord. Because what do I know about him? Verse 19 Habakkuk's final words The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds' feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Go sing that. Go put that in your hymn book and sing it. Sing it out in terms of praise in terms of gratitude, in terms of a declaration of my faith in the Lord. Because he's my strength. And I will sing every step I take as I walk up upon those high places. If the Lord is at home in his holy house, and it's the mountain of the Lord, then that's where I'll climb. And no matter how steep the path, no matter how precarious the journey he will make my feet like Heinz's feet. Mike Wilcox, affectionately known to me as Uncle Mike, recently wrote a beautiful little book called Holding On. And in it, he talks about navigating faith crisis. And just holding on to the things you know, even when blessings seem to be far off in the distance. And one of my favorite principles he points out is from this verse in Habakkuk about hinds feet. The concept is mentioned elsewhere in scripture. Uh, Often, earlier we saw talk about feet not sliding. Well, if a hind in this case is like a deer or a mountain goat or some kind of ibex, their feet are made in such a way, created by the creator himself in such a way that they can just grip rock where there doesn't seem to be even a toehold it's, have you ever seen those nature documentaries? It's crazy as they're just climbing up sheer cliffs. But their feet don't slide. As we live in a world of wickedness, as we're surrounded by Babylon trying to rob us of everything we have, including the faith that we're meant to live by, you and I all know people around us whose feet have slipped to the point that sometimes we start getting nervous like are any of these footholds will any any foothold hold and what we need is more faith in the lord trusting in him him being the source of our strength to the point that our feet suddenly morph into hinds feet that can grip the tiniest crevice and keep ascending the mountain of the Lord. That's, to me, what being unshaken really looks like. But it always comes as a blessing from God, the God who is our strength, if we'll simply live by faith in him. The next chapter, the next book, then, brings us face to face with The ultimate enemy, the wicked world that we live in, spiritual Babylon, spiritual Assyria. It's all right here around us. And Zephaniah builds on Nahum's warning about Assyrian destruction, Habakkuk's warning of Babylonian destruction to give to us this big picture destruction of the end of the world. And so if you don't want to be part of it, you better get out of Babylon which Isaiah has warned us to do, which section 133 of the Doctrine and Covenants said repeatedly to do, to flee Babylon, to come to Zion, to ascend the mountain of the Lord on those hinds feet that Habakkuk just mentioned. Notice what Zephaniah will do here. He probably lives around the time of Habakkuk, which would put him around the time of Jeremiah and Lehi and Daniel and Ezekiel and all the rest, with this imminent destruction weighing down on them. Uh, the conquest of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, their own abomination of desolations, which will be repeated by the Romans, which will be repeated, Armageddon. This is all preview of coming destructions. And so he gives us some historical context in verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now this Zephaniah, we see some of his family history there. Quite the line, by the way, when it says Hezekiah. Could that be Hezekiah? Is there some connection through the royal line? We don't know. He's living in the days of Josiah, who's another righteous king cut out of the same mold as Hezekiah. Both of those were reforming kings, trying to clean up Judah trying to postpone destruction? And Zephaniah, whose name means the Lord has hidden or the Lord has stored up, uh, what message has he hidden within Zephaniah? What blessings are, has the Lord stored up for people that are trying to reform Israel and, or Judah and become more worthy and righteous in the sight of God? What What promises has he hidden to those of us living in the last days? And what reassurance is stored up so that we can navigate the the Babylon all around us? Well, notice what he says. Zephaniah 1, verse 2 and 3. Here's this judgment of doom. And it's not just on Assyria. It's not just on Babylon. This is big picture. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked and I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. That is one of the strongest warnings of doom anywhere in scripture because it's complete annihilation. It's not some kind of local devastation. This is all things. But as a result of that, this is a chance for all things to become new a new heaven and a new earth. Though the heavens and earth shall pass away, my word shall not pass away. It will all be fulfilled, including the promises we'll see here. But in the meantime, we are seeing a reversal of creation. It's turning back to chaos. We saw beasts and fowls and fishes and even man himself but to reverse all that, to clear the slate, to make way for a new creation? Armageddon leading to Adam on Diamond? In verse 4 through 6, I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. Uh, get rid of the enemy. Cut them off. That's not the righteous remnant. That's a wicked one. It doesn't deserve to stay the name of the Chemerims with the priests and them that worship the hosts of heaven upon the housetops and them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that's capital Lord, so that's Jehovah and that swear by Malcolm and them that are turned back from the Lord, Jehovah those that have not sought the Lord, Jehovah nor inquired of him and that's an odd passage because so much of it is focused on on false gods right? You get Baal, you get Malcolm. I assume that the Chemarims are among that too, but then also at the same time you get the priests, and you do get the Lord Jehovah. You get the God of Israel, as well as all these others. And there are times where they are worshipping and swearing by the true God, but then there's times they're swearing by false gods. And there's times that they are following the Lord, and other times they're turning away from the Lord. And then there's those that seek Him, and those that don't seek Him at all. And don't ever ask. Now, as odd as that is, it, it shouldn't be too odd since we're all guilty of it. Do we sometimes mingle our membership in the kingdom of God with, with lesser loyalties? Do we sometimes include God within the mix? But I got all kinds of gods that I worship. I mean, no man can serve two masters, but can we do more than two? Or are you just assuming that, that we can only have less? Because sadly, in our day, we worship all kinds of masters. We serve all kinds. And give some of our talent and time and to others, to lesser things, to false gods. Or, another way to take it, on good days, yes, we worship and swear by the Lord. But then there's other days we turn back from him. Other days we don't seek him at all. We don't inquire. How's that for diluted discipleship where in mingled with our activity is inactivity or apostasy or apathy or ignorance. Can't we be as jealous of God as he is of us? Can't we be fiercely loyal and make him the one and only to whom we consecrate all things? He'll give us back what we need to give to the kinds of <laughs> Oh, mortal taskmasters that we do have to pay to keep the lights on. But to put God first and foremost in our lives instead of all those other masters. In verse 7 and 8, Zephaniah says, Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice. He hath bid his guests, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. That's one of my favorite verses in Zephaniah. Because it leads to so many other interesting thoughts. You see, at the beginning, when he talks about the day of the Lord is at hand, Zephaniah uses the word day probably more frequently than any other prophet. It runs throughout these three little chapters, which lets us know what day he's talking about. In some ways, he's living in a day of destruction, and so he's taking all his eggs out of his time period and putting them in the restorations basket. Then it's going to work out. And so I'm going to put my hope there in final fulfillment. And in the day of the Lord, this is what things will, This is how things will be. Now, in that day, though, When the Lord has prepared his sacrifice. Everything else has been leading up to that kind of preview. And we're offering these things in similitude. What about when the Lord himself comes? When the lamb without blemish returns to the earth. And the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and bid his guests. Now, kings and princes, the rich and the noble that have been invited to this feast... Are they worthy to be there? Or have they been so focused on worldly masters that they don't care about the divine one? In which case, we better go out and find someone to be able to come and furnish the feast with guests. When they come, though, are there those that might be clothed with strange apparel? Because they were unwilling to wear the wedding garment that God had given them. Is this sounding familiar from our most recent general conference? Because this is what Elder Bednar talked about. Though he never mentioned Zephaniah, he mentioned Jesus and the parable of the marriage of the king's son, in which there is a king that offers the sacrifice to gather all people to the wedding feast of his son. The crown prince of peace is coming. Will, we, will you be prepared for it? And here comes a man without his wedding garment on. Elder Bednar did an amazing job of explaining the significance of that wedding garment. But what I love about Elder Bednar's talk about that parable is to take it back one more step and realize where did Jesus get that symbolism. And as he's teaching that parable, Oh, any Jew who knows their Old Testament well enough will perk up their ears and think, this is a lot like Zephaniah, isn't it? Am I clothed in strange apparel? Am I not wearing the garments of praise or the robes of righteousness? How am I dressed instead? And what will happen if I find myself among princes and kings' children that that are not worthy to attend this wedding feast. Because back to the parable that as Jesus gave it, what did they do instead? They all came up with excuses. Ah, oh, sorry, I can't make it to the feast. I just bought a farm and want to go check it out. Just bought some yoke of oxen. I want to go on a test drive. Just got married and like to hang out with my wife at home. But enjoy your feasts and your son's wedding. We come up with excuses. When he sends out servants, we ignore them. We slay them. What Jesus teaches in that parable And what Zephaniah is hinting at here are we ready for the day of the Lord? Are we properly covered by the atonement of Christ a coat of skins that only the lamb without blemish can offer us? Are we prepared for the marriage of the king's son? Because he's coming. Five wise virgins, five foolish ones there's so many examples he's drawing upon. Are we ready? If not, verse 9 through 11, in the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold. Scholars suggest that might be some kind of pagan religious custom that people in Zephaniah's day would have known about that we no longer do. But they'll be punished. Also, those which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. There, once again, is this idea of violence and corruption that we saw before the flood and we saw in, in Nahum. And it shall come to pass in that day, that latter day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and an howling from the second and a great crashing from the hills. Can you picture the sounds of destruction all over the city? Oh, the fish gate. Oh, now they're in the second gate. Now they're crashing through the hills. Howl ye, inhabitants of Makhtesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. Once again, God is passing judgment upon the wickedness of Jerusalem or the wickedness of our wicked world today. Similar sins as the days before the flood, but also what we've been seeing so much of this week, the economic side of things, these merchant people. We weren't gathering spiritual strength. We were gathering temporal stuff. And that seemed to be our focal point. In verse 12 and 13, what will the Lord do then? It shall come to pass at that time, he always has his eye on the distant future, that I will search Jerusalem with candles. Ye are the light of the world. Hold it up. Use it to attract people to that gospel glow. The Lord is searching Jerusalem for the righteous, for the faithful. Who has the mark of God upon their foreheads instead of the mark of the beast? Revelation is drawing on this kind of imagery as well. So he searches Jerusalem with candles and he will punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become a booty and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. And that's got to be the most devastating thing for a merchant imaginable. The most devastating thing for someone that's rich is to build up everything for themselves and then never be able to move into the house. Never to be able to enjoy the fruits of their labors. In a way, this is another parable. The the parable of the rich fool who tears down what he's got so he has room for all that he wants to amass even further. And yet his life is taken that night. He's called to the account. And here as the Lord is searching Jerusalem with candles, trying to draw out the righteous, but also to shine the light into the hidden, dark things that people want to remain in the shadows. Who's there hiding? Oh, just men settled on their lees. What does that mean? Uh, But first I think of those settled on their laurels, where it's just like, oh, all is well in Zion. I'm good. I'm fine. I, I I, I won't be punished. Is there, are there those that are at ease in Zion? Those that are complacent and apathetic? I think that is part of it. But also settled on the lees is kind of a wine metaphor of, lie, of wine on the lees well refined. In this case this sediment that could give full flavor uh, to the wine, but in this case wickedness that is settled on its own sinful sediment. And there they are settled on their lees and saying to the Lord, "Ah, (laughs) nothing's going to come of it. He doesn't do good. He doesn't do evil. I don't know if he does anything. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And eh, whatever. We don't have to worry about the judgment of God because I don't worry about God. And they live without God in the world. That's a scary place to be. In some ways, they have been lulled into a false sense of security because God is slow to anger. And while he's given them time to repent, instead they're just steeping in their sin like wine on the lees. And that's tragic. Rather than find those with their strange apparel, I guess the king's raiment wasn't good enough for them. I would so much prefer God, rather than spending his time searching for that iniquity, I'd rather have him spend it searching out the righteous. It reminds me of the parable of the lost coin and this woman who lights a candle to be able to search for that lost coin throughout her house until she finds it and goes rejoicing. There will be joy in heaven Mm. over the sinner who returns if, with our light, we can coax people out of the shadows. If we can find the righteous remnant, wherever they might be. Zephaniah then goes on in verse 14 through 16. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. How's that for the opposite of Habakkuk? Though it tarry, wait for it, it will come. Well, by now, by the time the end is here, the great day of the Lord, then yes, Zephaniah, it's near. It's hastening greatly because the Lord is hastening his work in his time. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. I told you the word day would, re- would be repeated over and over and over through this chapter. And so it is. When will that day be? Well, we're in the days already. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And that day is getting latterer and latterer as time goes on. You remember when General Eisenhower was planning his assault on the beaches of Normandy? He wasn't sure what day would be best, depending on weather and other conditions so he just called it D-Day D as in day as in the day that we're going to do it whenever that day comes and here Zephaniah keeps, is, is focused on this D-Day whenever the day will come but it is the day of the Lord and it's near and it's getting nearer now that's great news for the righteous for the prepared but for those who are not then his list is haunting wrath and trouble and distress desolation, darkness, gloom The scariest word, though, is wasteness, which is not a word we use in English. Maybe that's what needs to jolt us into recognition. Something's there. If you look up wasteness, or the word translated as wasteness in the Hebrew, it can also be translated as destruction. It can be translated as devastation. In many modern translations, it's simply rendered ruin. This will be a day of ruin. And yet the Hebrew word itself, the word there in Zephaniah 1, verse 15, is Shoah. That's the ruin. That's the devastation. That's the destruction. And if the word Shoah rings any bells, even for non-Hebrew speakers, it's because that's the word that Jews use to this day to refer to the Holocaust speaking of D-Day and the need to free people and liberate those whose lives have been snuffed out to a degree unimaginable there's a desolation of abominations if I ever saw one and to see that Shoah that Holocaust describing Armageddon describing what Zephaniah is so concerned about as far as the coming of the great day of the Lord is concerned. If that doesn't motivate us to wear the right wedding garment, to have our lights burning and have plenty of extra oil, to search out through Jerusalem with candles to find the righteous remnant and to bring them home, and to convince people to come out of darkness and live into the light, if that doesn't motivate us, I don't know what will. Because this day of darkness and devastation and desolation and gloom will leave a world in ruin. A holocaust that could consume all things. In verse 17, Zephaniah says, I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Of course, they're like blind men. They've extinguished the light of the world. They're not the ones going around with candles. They're the ones trying to escape the light. And the way it's described at the end, human beings reduced to dust and dung. There's a holocaust for you. The chapter ends in verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. All that wealth you've been amassing, it's worthless now. You cannot buy off the eternal judge and destruction will come speedily. That pile of thick clay, all those tablets with all of your buyings and sellings, no, there's nothing left of it. And now, when you thought someday you'd be able to call in all of your debtors, it's time for you to settle your accounts. And you're woefully unprepared for this speedy riddance that came faster than you ever imagined. Zephaniah chapter 2, then he warns, not just Israel or Judah, but all the surrounding nations, like so many prophets have, I'm a prophet to the world, not just to God's people, because they're all God's people, all His children. So He says in 1 through 3, gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Interesting title. A nation not desired. That sounds a lot like Hosea's, Lo Ami. You're not my people. I didn't desire you. I'm not going to claim you, because you wouldn't claim me. But I'm trying to gather you. Before the decree, bring forth. Before the day passes the chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. You get this sense? Before, before, before. It's the speedy riddance and the clock is ticking. It's on its way. So you've got to be ready before the alarm sounds. Before the midnight strike and the the marriage is here. It's time. What should we be doing before, before, before? We should seek ye the Lord. All ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment, seek righteousness, seek meekness. And it may be, ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So don't just accept them when they come. Seek them, search them out. Remember when the women came to the tomb, that empty tomb, that Easter morning, and the angel said, why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Why would you search for life in dead places? And yet we do that all the time. What should we be seeking instead? Righteousness. Meekness. The Lord himself. And you know, the meek of the earth will do that. The meek, those that are humble enough to realize what I've been searching is a dead thing, In a dead place. I want to change my goals and purify my desires. I want to seek the Lord. And then the way He ends it is just beautiful. It may be. There's someone who's not presuming upon His grace. There's someone who's not just chalking it up and putting it on the Lord's tab. He's not just assuming, of course, God's slow to anger and He'll never get there. No, He will. I just hope I've repented before, before, before those days come. If I have, then I just might have done it in time. I just might be preserved. The Lord would say, of course you will be. But thank you for not presuming upon my grace. That's meekness for you once again. Verse 4 and 5, For Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon, a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Those were all cities of the Philistines, and they'll all be destroyed. The one that's missing is Gath, but that was already destroyed by then. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, he continues, the nation of the Cherethites, which again, we're not totally sure who they are, but they might be connected to the Philistines too. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee that there shall be no inhabitant. So here's a warning to one of Judah's neighbors. Despite the fact that historically they were one of Judah's enemies. But no, God cares about them too. Verse 6 and 7, he further expands the scope. The sea coast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening for the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. Here's a promise of the people of Israel returning to the promised land. You can have Philistine territory. It was meant for you anyway. The Philistines are no longer there. Or other areas. Look at 8 and 9. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon. There are the descendants of Lot and his daughters whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. I mean, if you know your book of Genesis, you never want to be compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you know what happened to those cities. And fittingly, it's the descendants of Lot and his daughters who, were, who had escaped Sodom and Gomorrah and gone up on this mountain and looked like the world all around them had been completely annihilated. That's a preview of coming destructions. And you Ammonites, you Moabites, it will be no different for you. There's no escaping up the mountain this time because you wouldn't take the climb. No hinds feet for you, and you slipped and fell and attacked my people instead of supporting them. No remnant, no residue for you. Whereas the remnant, the righteous remnant, the residue of my people will then inhabit those lands. We are repopulating the promised land. This is the ultimate last days gathering of Israel. Zephaniah then says in verse 10 and 11, This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. And yes, pride goeth before the fall. Here comes yours. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, everyone from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. You see, if you've cleared out the heathen to make way for the chosen people, God is also clearing out the false gods to make way for the true God, the one true God. All those other gods are famished. No one's there to feed them. And yet here's the Lord feeding his people Israel, like the good shepherd for his, the sheep of his fold. In verse 12 through 14, he cries out against other nations, Ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation. Nahum perks up for that one. And dry like a wilderness. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her. All the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern, shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds. For he shall uncover the cedar work. Do you picture a a ghost town? A city so devastated, homes completely deserted to the point that there are now birds nesting up in the lintels above the doors, broken windows, cobwebs everywhere. Well, how's that for Ethiopia and Assyria, once mighty nations that have been brought to their knees? In verse 15, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly. That said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. Oh, how is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. And what city is he speaking of? Well, he's speaking of Nineveh. He mentioned them back in verse 13. Yes, the Assyrians will be destroyed. There'll be nothing left. Yes, that was a city that dwelt carelessly and said, I'm the, I'm the, the capital city of the, of the greatest empire on earth. But didn't you get gobbled up by the Babylonians? Oh, so maybe we're talking about the city of Babylon. And now Babylon is the rejoicing city that dwells carelessly and says, I am and none beside me. Well, just wait, because then the Persians will take over and then they'll feel like it's all about them until the Greeks beat them and then Athens will be the city rejoicing that ends up dwelling carelessly until Rome becomes the rejoicing you get, you get a sense here? you could even fit Jerusalem in the mix had Jerusalem gotten to a point where it was dwelling carelessly thinking we got God on our side at least we got his house right here so what bad could possibly come upon us? well you have no idea. And for those of us forced to live in exile in in spiritual Babylon in the last days, oh, I hope we're not dwelling carelessly or casually. We have to be intentional Christians, committed covenant keepers. <laughs> the, the only city that we really need to focus on and that truly stands alone is Zion, the new Jerusalem. That's what we need to build. And so to do that, we need to gather and bring of all nations those that can come and help construct the kingdom of God. That's the invitation in Zephaniah chapter 3, our final chapter. It is the gathering in the latter days. So he says in verse 1 and 2, whether he's speaking to Nineveh or to Jerusalem or any other city, he says now, Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. That's a pretty rough list. Disobedience, an unwillingness to be corrected, which means an unwillingness to repent. No trust of the Lord. Always keeping God at arm's length not wanting to stay covenant-connected to him. In verse 3 and 4, her princes within her are roaring lions. We saw the lions of Assyria before. Are these lions of the tribe of Judah? Are they worthy? Well, no. But they're roaring. Next, her judges. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. In other words, there's nothing left for the next day. These judges... Just rapacious, trying to to consume the people that they should be serving instead. And there's no self-restraint, just greed. Instant gratification, gnawing on the bones. Not only the princes, not only the judges, but here's the worst of all. Her prophets, the people that should have been leading them to righteousness. Instead, her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Now, that is one of my favorite descriptions of false prophets. They are light and treacherous. Light. Think about that. Think about they're they're so light that they are blown about by every wind of doctrine. They're the type that are reeds shaken in the wind. They're so light that wherever people want to blow them, they'll go and say, oh, yes, follow, when really it's the prophet following the people instead of the other way around. These are those who neglect what Jesus called the weightier matters. No wonder they're so light. And as the world is being winnowed, they will blow away like the chaff where those who bear the heavy burdens, true prophets and apostles, will come back down to the threshing floor where God will gather them into his garners for good. Light? Prophets? Oh No. I I want to bear the burdens God has placed upon my shoulders. I want to bear off the kingdom triumphant. It will keep me, that the weight of responsibility, will keep me from being blown about. Zephaniah then says in verse 5, The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not. But the unjust knoweth no shame now think about what he just said there every morning he brings his judgment to light I mean he is a just Lord after all it's the unjust that no no shame but the justness of God will come every morning to bring judgment to light he's searching Jerusalem with candles remember remember that incredible verse in Lamentations one of my favorites in, anywhere in scripture that talks about the Lord's compassion is what has kept us from being completely consumed and then he says, they are new every morning. Hold on to that promise, because it's true. But make sure you balance it with this passage from Zephaniah. Because not only are God's compassions new every morning, but so are his judgments. They are brought to light every morning as well. You see, if you only hold to the first one, it's like, oh, what does it take to to be forgiven? Just go to bed and wake up with a clean slate. Ah, no, that's true if you repent. And every morning God will give you the chance to do so. But God will also hold you responsible every morning. There is this perfect balance, this proving of contraries, and justice and mercy define God to the core. So keep those in proper perspective. Balance yourself between them. And be just troubled enough by this verse to make sure that the verse in Lamentations never lulls you into a false sense of security. Okay. Then in verse 6 and 7, I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste, that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me, thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever I punished them. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. You see what he's what God is lamenting over I punished your enemies in hopes that it would wake you up so that you would truly be my friends did you not learn anything from the destruction of Assyria did you not learn anything from the destruction of Babylon is the only thing you'll learn from your own destruction because it's looking like self-destruction for, for me it, for you to not see to not fear me, honor me, revere me, to not receive instruction. Instead, just to get up early and go back to your old sins. We've got to be wiser than that. So he says in verse 8, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is, and I love this, I'm determined to do it. This is my plan. This is my work. This is my glory. This is what I will do. My determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now, I, was, I got my hopes up when he talked about the gathering of all nations. Oh, the gathering of Israel. Wonderful. Well, yes and no. Yes, Israel is being gathered into the garner of God, but also the That's the wheat. But the tares are being gathered as well. The tares are being gathered into bundles to be burned at the coming of Christ. That's the the parable of the wheat and the tares. And to see what is happening here, all the earth shall be devoured. This is second coming. This is Armageddon. This is a prophet with his eye fixed on the latter days. In that same light, though, If verse 8 was the bad news, look at verse 9 and 10 as the good. Remember, mercy is always just a verse or two away. For then, in that latter day, will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, in other words, my worshipers, even the daughter of my dispersed shall bring mine offering. That's the gathering we've been hoping for. That's the gathering of Israel that we perform on both sides of the veil. All those scattered, all the daughters of my dispersed will be brought home. Remember on shoulders and in arms by kings and queens, their nursing fathers and nursing mothers. That's what's happening here. And they'll all be singing songs as they come and build again Zion. And the songs will all be sung in one accord One consent, a pure language. That's beautiful. The Lord is the word, after all. And once we learn him, we know the pure language. We can speak it together and perfectly understand one another. This is Zion. One heart and one mind. There's the one consent. Dwelling together in righteousness. No poor among us. There's the unity that God expects of us all and unity to the point that we can all understand one another purely and perfectly. What he just described here is the reverse of the Tower of Babel as they were trying to find shortcuts to heaven and counterfeit towers and mountains of the Lord, mountains of their own construction. No, the day will come where we realize that that was a flawed approach. There's a true temple and the Lord is in it. And with my hinds feet, I can climb even to him. We all can. And so let us come together, communicate together, receive again this pure language and climb back to God with one consent. Verse 11, he then says, in that day, there's his focus as always on the last days. Shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me? For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. Now that's a tricky verse in the King James. The New International Version helps us understand it a little bit better. It reads, On that day you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. In other words, you no longer will take the temple for granted. You won't be haughty on my holy hill. You'll be humble there. It's the meek that I'm seeking, and the meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus said. It's the hum- those who are humble enough to come when the Lord comes calling, when he gathers his people. In verse 12, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people. Now, other translations render that better. A meek and humble people. That's who will be left. The people who are worthy of that. Who were willing to take off the the, the robes that the world is offering and take instead the garment of God the, no more strange apparel, just the wedding garment, just the robes of righteousness. That's what the meek and the humble will wear. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The proud are removed to make room for the humble. Just like I said already, the meek shall inherit the earth. In verse 13, the remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall the deceitful tongue be found in their mouth for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. There's a lot here that has been fear-inducing, frightening. All this talk of wolves and leopards and lions and eagles and wicked world all around us. But to be able to feed and lie down, again, let's go back to another nature documentary, and picture the, the watering hole. Where everyone's driven there because you gotta have water or you'll die, and yet everyone's so skittish. And as soon as I mean, they're drinking with just tense and ready to to run at, at at any ripple in the water, any thought of crocodiles within or lions and leopards without, and all this prey scared to death of the predators. To just get what I came for and then run for my very life. Compare that to a day when the lion can lie down with the lamb. When the wolf and the kid can get along just fine together. Dwelling in peace in the Lord's holy mountain. Imagine them feeding and lying down. I'm safe. There's no fear. None shall make me afraid and who get, who receives that promise the remnant of Israel the righteous remnant this covenant core that is going to gather all people to them all who are meek enough to come in verse 15, 14 and 15 sing o daughter of zion shout o israel be glad and rejoice with all the heart o daughter of jerusalem What's, what, what's there to sing and shout about? I mean, this is the Spirit of God like a fire is burning, right? We'll sing and we'll shout. Well, that's what we're doing. We're doing it gladly. We're rejoicing. And why? Because the Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil anymore. Zion has finally been established in peace. The Prince of Peace is here among us we believe in the literal gathering of Israel and the restoration of the Ten Tribes. That Zion, the New Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent. That Christ will return to the earth and that the earth will receive its paradisiacal glory. I love the Tenth Article of Faith. And to see it all promised here in this beautiful little book of Zephaniah, that the day will come in that day, where all will be well. He says in verse 16 through 18, In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, Let not thine hand be slack. Remember that verse we saw in Peter, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Well, we better not be slack in keeping our part of the promise. But if we'll build Zion, if we'll build, rebuild Jerusalem, no slacking hands, then no fear. Because it's millennial kingdom time. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Think about all those who have been dispersed and can't come to the pilgrimage feasts. That's kind of what's happening here. In, in, as Babylon has come and conquered. And Israel is off in captivity. And will we ever get to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild it? This is in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. When they finally are able to do so. We'll get more of that next week with Haggai. But in the meantime, wondering, will we ever get to return? And the answer is yes. In that day. Think about missing out on coming together for general conference because of COVID. And then when we can finally all return and fill the conference center, oh, there's time to sing and shout. There's a chance to rejoice in the presence of a God who is mighty to save. And then how it describes him. I love this passage. As Zephaniah is coming to its end, that he will rejoice over you and over me, over all of us, with joy, that he will rest in his love and joy over us with singing. Can you imagine hearing the Savior sing? As he raises his voice in gratitude and joy, that he found faith on the earth, that we were here ready for him, trying to prepare the earth for his glorious second coming so that he can finally rest in his love. He usually works in his love. And it's his love that is leading him, motivating him to keep working with us and crying repentance and being slow to anger and being rich in mercy and sending watchmen off the tower to, to cry repentance to us all. His love is a working love. But imagine getting to a point where we have we've done all that His love asked us to do. We are living worthily and righteously. We're wearing the right wedding garment. It's a garment of praise. And the Lord can come and rest. His love can rejoice. His love can be at peace. He can just shed it forth upon each of us as we have become worthy of that love. This is the chance what Joseph Smith says in that great that great statement about the standard of truth. That regardless of what the enemy does armies assemble and calumny made to fame But when the truth of God will go forth nobly, boldly, and independent and penetrate every continent and visit every clime, sound in every every ear, how does the, the quote end? Until the purposes of God will be accomplished and the great Jehovah shall say, the work is done. That's a day I look forward to. It's a day Zephaniah was looking forward to. It's a day when the Lord will rest in his love. And at that time, Zephaniah ends, verse 19 and 20. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee. I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. What a fitting capstone for this beautiful little book of Scripture. In the latter days, every wrong thing will be made right. Captivity will turn into liberation. Scattering will turn into gathering. We'll all be able to come back home to God. And those that were a hiss and a byword will now become a praise and a fame among all people instead of people looking down upon you they're looking up to you as you look up to God we're all looking up to him together it's amazing the role reversal that God is promising his people here and if we can simply trust in him and rest in his love as he wants to rest in it himself then every wrong thing will be made right Remember that beautiful passage in Isaiah 56 that promised those that felt cut off or strangers? Strangers and eunuchs are the specific audience. Those that just felt like they didn't fit. And yet, if you'll just hold to the covenant, what's the promise? A place and a name better than anything you imagine for yourself. There's a similar promise here at the end of Zephaniah a name and a praise. I pray we can live up to it. That we can live up to that name because it's the name of Christ that we've taken upon ourselves. That we can live up to that praise, not that, we're, that we want to be praised, that we want to, want to offer our praise to a God who deserves it. The things we've studied today from Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, I hope they'll linger in our hearts and that we'll have the patience and faith to trust in a God that will defeat our enemies. If you're feeling them bear down upon you, trust that God has overcome Assyria and conquered our captivity in Babylon, that the day will come where he will set the captive free, return us to a new Jerusalem, open those gates of praise, I testify of him and promise that in the coming day he will return. I pray that he will find faith upon the earth. And he will, if we, in the meantime, can be among those just who live by faith and by faithfulness. He is faithful to us. And I pray that we can be faithful to him.